Good night, mate. Forty here. It's a it's another stinking hot day in Ten of Sands, but I'm still your your no fat warrior. You know, victory over sin, no matter how hot the the, the temptation. Right, that that's our, our motto. And uh, speaking of temptation, this isn't getting any major news coverage right now, which is a little weird. Right, you you think that with Kevin McCarthy, you know, trying and failing three separate times to become the new Speaker of the House. No one's talking about it. I read this long article in the New Yorker about Kevin McCarthy's bid for power. Uh, remember back in 2015, yeah, journalist Mark Halperin tweeting, that time everyone in politics and journalism knew what happened and readers, viewers, and listeners were left in the dark. So there's you know widespread belief in Washington, D.C. that Kevin McCarthy had an affair with then-Congresswoman Renee Elmers. She made this cryptic remark that uh, I'm apparently not high on his priority list. That's what Renee Elmers said when commenting about Kevin McCarthy failing to ask for her support. Apparently, I'm not high on his priority list. And so you had, back in 2015, some mainstream news media to the effect unsubstantiated gossip takes down Kevin McCarthy. I mean, you had this percolating throughout the conservative logosphere. And then you had uh, GOP rep Walter Jones saying that uh, candidates for speaker should withdraw if they've committed any misdeeds since joining Congress. And he later confirmed that his letter was inspired by a blog post he read about Kevin McCarthy and uh, Renee Elmers. And then a few hours later, Kevin McCarthy changed his mind back in 2015 about pursuing the speakership. You have all these conservative activists emailing top Republicans about the affair rumor. And uh, both parties, both Kevin and, and Renee Elmers, d- denied the, ruler, or the rumor. But it, it appears that Kevin McCarthy's speakership bid will be denied yet again. And maybe Steve Scalise or, or Jim Jordan will uh, will become the speaker. So, just kind of curious, why is there no mention of this in the in the mainstream media? Okay, a lot to talk about today. Here is a professor at Harvard, Joyce Benenson talk about how do women compete for partners? What is going on that a woman could actually say, I feel terrible that that woman got a really expensive car, right? That's a a male thing, right? Or I feel terrible that that woman bought this beautiful house because I don't, I don't have that. And to feel as bad or worse than men. And overall from what we had 22 items, women felt worse. Okay, Over the last is, uh, few months, Prince one of the most Williams interesting topics that I've learned about has been intrasexual competition, and particularly female intrasexual competition, because I think it's overlooked a lot. When we're talking about status-seeking behavior, when we're talking about competitiveness, immediately everybody goes to men as the, uh, how would you say, the prime example. That's the flagship example of what we're talking about. A lot of your work has looked at the unique and quite vicious ways that females enact their intrasexual competition, their status-seeking behavior. So what is unique about the female competition for status when you compare it with males? 
Okay, well, I guess I have a recent paper where I argue that females more than males engage in safe, um, subtle, and solitary forms of competition. So this is a comparison. And by safe, I've done a lot of work, and many others have, um, suggesting that across animal species, females need to stay alive more. So males can take risks. So you could have one male uh, live fast, uh, die young, right? One male who inseminates lots of females, and he dies very early in life, but he's still going to leave a lot of um, offspring. So whether that's humans or others, doesn't matter. And um, he doesn't have to worry that much about survival. But females, if we're talking about mammals, are the ones who have to take care of the offspring. And this certainly goes for humans. And not only do mothers, but grandmothers in humans. So we're really taking care of offspring for many, many decades, um, have to take care of offspring. So it's no good to engage in dangerous tactics. That would be stupid in terms of being able to take care of your offspring and your grandchildren too. So number one. So you never see essentially women as a group criticized in the mainstream media. They are one of those sacred groups. So remember perhaps the shortest definition of woke is you believe that there are sacred groups who should be immune from criticism. And these sacred groups tend to include women, gays, the transgender, Jews, blacks, uh, Puerto Ricans. There are all these, you know, supposedly marginalized communities who, who now should be exempt from criticism. So that women don't want to date short guys, all right? Women don't get criticized for that. Society gets criticized for that, Steve Saylor notes. But women are never criticized. And the, the brutal, the, the vicious competition between women for mates... Right, this doesn't get much attention. So you have all these news stories about how men lack friends these days, you know, how pathetic men are, how lonely men are. But uh, this same Harvard professor who specializes in you know, evolutionary theory, she, she makes the point that female friendships are much more fragile, much more vulnerable, they're much more up and down all right, than, than male friendships. But this very rarely gets you know public attention because women are a sacred group that you can't you can't criticize when i would say females are safe and part of being safe is if you have a competitive interaction if you have a conflict um you better be subtle about it because if you go up as a male might and you know punch somebody in the face or um verbally harangue them or engage in any kind of very not. So I think this is why women fight dirty. All right. Compared to, to men, it seems like women fight dirty because men are raised with the idea of competition and the idea that competition has rules. But if you ever get into a, a fight with your female partner, women will go to depths that uh, most men cannot even imagine. They'll start you know, sending faxes to his workplace. Like, how many men have tried to get, you know, their their ex-girlfriend fired from, from her job, right? I, I've never heard that happen. I'm sure it does at times. But I know countless guys who've been harassed by ex-girlfriends who are just very bitter that he broke up with her. And so they try to chase him down at his workplace or at his church or at his stamp club or at his synagogue, whatever it is. The, the vengeance of women is, you know, off the scale, and women frequently just fight dirty in a way that men cannot comprehend. And perhaps a large part of it is that most women have never been punched in the face. Most men have been punched in the face. 
they know what it's like to be punched in the face. And so they don't fall to the depths that women often do when women feel threatened. Unsubtle direct behavior, then that's more likely to invite retaliation. So uh, retaliation obviously can lead to a lot of injury and even death. And that males across many species are willing to do that because, again, as I said before, they can still leave many offspring. But females can't because after a long period of gestating and lactating, uh, you have to invest in protecting your offspring. And usually without the help of the male and with humans, it varies whether there's a male to help or not, whether the father's around, another male, not clear. So it's very important, again, that um, one is subtle in conflicts, in competition. And and so what do we do? We uh, develop all kinds of different types of tactics for competing. And so, yeah, the, the weaker partner is going to have to be much more subtle. All right. This isn't just uh, women versus men, but in society. All right. You're a small minority group, say a middleman minority going to have to be much more subtle about how you go about things than if you're the, the strongest person, the strongest group, the, the dominant majority group in, in society. So much of uh, majority versus minority tension can be explained by the fact that uh, minorities need to use more deception and more subtlety, just like women vis-a-vis -vis men. Uh, men are almost always stronger than women, so women have have evolved to be much better at subtly manipulating situations. And minorities, right, they will be physically much more vulnerable than the majority, so they have to be smarter and more subtle about how they try to manipulate situations. And they have to do with nonverbal gestures, um, voice intonation change that's derogatory, talking about somebody who you want to get rid of. This is particularly obviously in humans if you're talking um, where you socially exclude someone so other females are around and you say oftentimes in a very sweet way, did you know that this woman did this terrible thing? And um, you're trying to kind of, I, I think it's said very well by a number of women where they say it in a sympathetic fashion but of course it's letting out terrible information about someone at the same at the same time so you know it's so awful that this happened to whoever and then everybody there knows and they wouldn't have known otherwise and that reduces her you know uh, reputation with everyone else so these kinds of subtle tactics obviously they're much safer but you know they're something that I believe are honed over many years, but I see it even in three-year-old girls where it's like, did you see she, she's so bossy? And that's a very common complaint where uh, boys don't like bossy boys either, but they'll, they'll punch them and run over their heads. I, I mean, I've actually seen that and that's, you have to deal with that. So, you know, you can argue about, I don't even say it's a comparison, like which is worse and people can go back and forth, but it's just different. And I do think it is very different. I, I don't think it's the same at all. And so I get surprised when people think there are no sex differences. And I'm like, have you ever been to a preschool? And this is pretty early in life. I've, I've done my work primarily with children, though, uh, more recently with adults. But, you know, um, preschools, so obvious, you have the girls on one side and the boys on the other. And so you're socializing something that they naturally do. But it's socialized then for the next rest of your life, where 
because of sex segregation, girls are more comfortable with the girls and boys are more comfortable with the boys. So you get a lot of practice doing this and you learn what it's like to be the butt of that and you learn to avoid it if at all possible. So um, this is socialization. I think a lot of people talk about socialization as coming from adults or parents or the media or social media or whatever. And sure, that's there. But to me, the power of social media as opposed to television or... So Twitter has been down in Australia largely for, for hours now. So if I'm not interacting with you on Twitter or if, if my live stream's not, not coming across, then uh, something's down about Twitter. It's uh, an absolute mess, but we're, we're going to struggle on here. Another topic I, I wanted to hit is uh, who are the major upper-class live streamers. So I, I read once that the upper-class and the lower-classes have something in common. They both tend to dread publicity. Maybe that's, that's much more tr true in England than in the United States, but who are the major upper-class live streamers? Who are the lords and the ladies of live streaming? Who are the aristocrats of live streaming? Like, which live streamers can trace their lineage back to the Mayflower? Like, who are the biggest wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, in live streaming? Like, who, who are the true Harvard men in live streaming? Because you'd think that perhaps, you know, maybe the, the Harvard man does not live stream. I, I know there are lots of graduates of Harvard who live stream, like Eric Weinstein, etc. But who are the the American aristocrats, the, the British aristocrats, the, the French, uh, the German aristocrats, the, the royalty of live streamers? Like which royalty, which members of the upper class host live streams? Right? That's, that's what I'm trying to figure out. It, it seems that hosting a live stream is a very middle class thing to do. The, the, the middle class are much more eager for publicity. It's like, yay, look at me. Listen to my opinions. Let me give you my hot take and why Kevin McCarthy's bid for the House Speakership has has been uh, derailed yet yet again. So it, it seems like a very middle class thing to be on reality TV to host your own podcast. Do working class people and do upper class people host their own podcasts? Do they appear on reality TV as much as middle class people? Do they host their own live streams? Right? Do, do they push forward their Instagram? It it feels like to me that live streaming, podcasting, pushing yourself forward on social media, appearing on reality shows is, is primarily a preoccupation of the middle class who, it seems generally speaking, you know, can't get enough publicity. Like, look at me, look at me, look at me. Very middle class attitude. The the upper class and working class attitude, generally speaking, I think, is to don't look at me, <laughs> to prefer their, their privacy. It, it seems to me the upper classes and the lower classes put a much greater premium on privacy and the middle classes are much more eager to bid for your attention to ask you, hey, have you heard my podcast? Or will you be a guest on my podcast? Or appear on a reality TV show? So give, give me some feedback here. It's 
Am I just way off base here? Right, uh, back to, this is Harvard professor Joyce Benenson. Adults or even parents is that it peers. And there's nothing stronger than peers as socializers. I, I just don't think people have understood that. So, you know, by the time you're three, you put a child into a, a daycare or a preschool or whatever in a hunter-gatherer society, just a group, um, whoever's there. And the peers have a lot to say about whether you have someone to talk to and somebody near you or whether you're all by yourself, which nobody wants. So it's very, very powerful. And the third thing I talk about is solitary competition. This is just one from one of my papers. And I do think a big part, a big attraction of competition for males is making it public. So you want to be able to show off that you beat this guy. I'm right now watching tennis matches because I did a study on um, what happens at the end of a tennis match. But, you know, that's what males want. They want public, conspicuous um, contests. And the more people watching, the better off. And that's, of course, risky if you happen to be the loser. But it's it gives the thrill, gets the testosterone going, the challenge. Um, females, they're new relatively to sports. Certainly uh, research over the last many centuries and across the world has shown males are much more likely to play sports. But it's not just sports. It's verbal contests. It's any kind of competitive behavior. Males want it public. They want it conspicuous. And then they want it to be clear who's a winner and who's a loser. That's the way it goes. In contrast, females, I find, are much, much more solitary in their competition. But it doesn't mean they're not competing. It means it sure seems that uh, women tend to take things very personally. So generally speaking, they are less cut out for, for competition. So if you produce a higher quality live stream than me, a more entertaining live stream than me, a funnier live stream than me, if you have better guests, you make more money, right? That's just black and white and uh, it's no big deal. I, I sleep at night. And if we play a game and you beat me, all right, black and white. If we have an argument, you know, on, on a live stream and you make better points, you puncture my arguments. Okay, it's it's not such a, a big deal. I, I don't take it personally. Maybe I had a bad day. Maybe I simply don't know as much. Maybe I'm just not as articulate, not as smart, not as rhetorically gifted, not as prepared. Uh, it's okay. I competed and, and I lost. But put put a woman in, in the situations that I just described, it, it it's my life experience, not saying that this is science, that this is peer-reviewed, but yeah, it's it's my life experience that women are probably five times as likely to take things personally uh, as uh, compared to men. means that, for example, um, I once went to a store where somebody asked me if I were, I was, I was older than this, but they asked me if I was going to the local prompt. And I said, no, I'm not going to the local prom. Why? And the, the store owner said, oh, we have to write down everybody's dress to make sure that no woman gets or girl gets the same dress because that would be really bad. But what the girls do is they try to find who has the best dress. And that's very important. So if you can go farther and if you can spend more money um, and get a prettier dress, then that's competing in a solitary fashion, what I call, what uh, kind of evolutionary biologists call scramble competition. So I'm not going into contests. I'm not going to yank your dress away from you, right? I'm not going to go over to your house and steal it. I'm not going to do something that's very direct and dangerous. 
Rather, I'm going to go off and I'm going to see, oh, here are the dresses at this store where everybody else is going, but I can go to a better store or I can find clothing some other place or just. Okay, this is Harvard professor Joyce Benenson talking on the Modern Wisdom podcast hosted by Chris Williamson. Come back to this later. Right, philosopher Neil Levy, right, two PhDs in philosophy. He was talking to the Decoding the Gurus. The uh, stuff that you're talking so, about in the social media. I believe about that. How should I act? The thing is, witty, but hmm. not everybody can be witty. And, and i got to say, as an aside, yeah, one of the eternal mysteries about Twitter to me is why my jokes don't get more. more <laughs> um, so he's talking about how to succeed in the you know, attention economy, how to succeed in the podcasting, tweeting, live streaming attention economy. You need a profile picture. That's the first thing. <laughs> I have a beautiful profile picture. It looks exactly like me. Um, I have to look at all that. Um, so they're going to want to say something different. And they're going to want to do it quickly because there's a first mover advantage. Yeah. In fact, ideally, you're going to want to be presenting your your view as not in, not following the headlines, but predating them. So that uh, you know. This is the thing to look out for. You, you establish a reputation as someone who's predicting the trends. You want to get to say something new, interesting, different, but you're also going to want to signal you've got... Right, so that's what I try to do. I want to say something new, different, interesting, and I want to be ahead of the trends. So I often delve into the under news. So there's the over news, what you see on TV, what you see in newspapers, on official sources, all right? Waiting for official sources, I'd, I'd like to delve into the under news, such as uh, why haven't people spoken about uh, Kevin McCarthy's alleged affair with Renee Elmers? Maybe that's another reason why uh, Kevin McCarthy once again can't get up as House Speaker. He's tried many times before. He's always fallen short. Right now, look, he looks like he's falling short again. Now, maybe all these rumors about marital infidelity with a fellow member of the House of Representatives, Renee Elmers, maybe that is also holding him back. The properties that make you worth following, you know, in this crowded marketplace, if somebody, people will want to go to turn to as soon as something hits and they think, well, what should I believe about that? Or how should I act? So you're going to have to back it up. I mean, you're going to have to work really hard to, you know, get on top of enough evidence that you look like. So I work really hard. All right. I mean, I work really hard at this because I love it. Right. But, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I do more reading. I make notes on what I'm reading. I cue things up. I, I write down my arguments. I make notes for the points that I want to elucidate when I'm particularly feeling strongly about something. I like to go live when, when I have the most energy and passion. All right. And I don't like to look like an idiot. So that incentivizes me to you know, read more deeply, to read more carefully, to read more widely. You know, I want to have my stuff together so I don't look like a complete, you know, Lutheran idiot. Now, th this hard work that, that I put into doing this, I, I enjoy it, right? It's just the equivalent for me is some people, they're into playing chess and other people are into playing basketball and other people are into hunting and fishing and studying Torah. All right, this is you know, my hobby, all right, where the hard work is fulfilling for me. So I have no complaints about the hard work, right? It's not, oh, is that dragging me down? Oh, I don't need you to empathize with how hard I work to produce these live streams. No, it's a, it's a joy 
to work hard doing this because it gives me more incentive to be more careful about what I'm thinking and reading. It gives me more incentive to be more accurate in my descriptions of reality, to build my, my arguments more carefully, right? So it's just a part of thinking socially. I think much more carefully when I think socially as opposed to just in my head and then with a few close close friends. So this is philosopher Neil Levy here talking about how to succeed in the attention economy, talking to the Decoding the Gurus blokes. Like you know what you're talking about. Uh, you want to look, you want to look passable, not just to to people with no background in the area at all. But you you want to avoid being being called out by by those with some knowledge. So you actually got a difficult task here, and that I think predicts you're going to go for contrarian takes because they're going to be different. You're going to want to signal virtues like courage. I'm not going to be bowed, you know, the pressure from the mainstream. You're going to want to signal your autonomy. I think for myself, I don't just follow the herd. And you're going to want to signal something like, you know, I don't think there's a word for it in virtue epistemology, interestingly, but something just like quickness of mind. I can mm. master this literature really quickly. I can synthesize mm. it and then produce something interesting. I don't think, I don't think everybody who does. So many of the most successful bloggers, all right, they write more quickly than the people who are better than them. And they write better than the people who are quicker than them. Right? So that's kind of a, a formula for successful blogging and a formula for success on social media. You don't have to be the quickest, but to be effective, you need to be quicker than those who are better and you need to be better than those who are quicker. I think I'm trying to think if there was a political blogger who used that language. That is necessarily virtue signaling on every occasion. But I think those are good things to look for. Well, you'll be glad to know we've been looking for them and we've been seeing them. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I, what you're describing, Neil, I can't help but, you know, like our mind is contaminated with the takes, long form takes and the Twitter feeds. So philosophy, Neil Levy here, he wrote a very interesting essay, Virtue Signaling is Virtuous. And I, I read it and I'm absolutely convinced he's right. So virtue signaling is something that we do on the right all the time, right? People on the left, you know, don't use virtue signaling as a put down, but people on the right, so one of the most common put downs, oh, this person's just virtue signaling. But uh, philosopher Neil Levy makes the argument in this academic paper, virtue signaling is virtuous. I think he's right, right? Let's look at animals. Animals use signals for a variety of purposes. We use signals too. I like shower before I go out, I use deodorant, I brush my teeth, I want to send, you know, a signal that, you know, I'm a pro-social dude. So gazelles signal their fitness by stopping, right? They, they jump up and down, boom, 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 in front of predators, all right? So peacocks signal their fitness with their spectacular tails. So good signals are hard to fake signals. If a signal is cheap, then defectors will co-opt it, it will rapidly lose its value. So starting is a hard to fake signal because it is costly, right? It takes tremendous energy. The gazelle who can afford to waste energy it might have saved for fleeing is probably not worth chasing. So so too with virtue signaling, it usually contains some cost and it's not easy to fake. The peacock's tail is a more reliable signal because the more spectacular the tail, the more resources are being devoted to it, the better the health of the bird. Also, a good signal of trustworthiness is hard to fake. Right? So hard to fake signals among people will take a variety of forms. Some are costly and you know, some are cheap. 
So regular attendance at religious services is costly, all right? It requires foregoing more immediately rewarding activities, right? Tithing is costly where you give 10% of your income to the church or to your community. It requires, you know, foregoing, you know, some, some kind of privation. Fasting is a common sign of religious commitment, such as during Lent or Ramadan or Yom Kippur. Particularly devout individuals in Christianity may take vows of celibacy or of poverty or you know, enter a small cell for life, such as, you know, a, a nunnery or some kind of Catholic religious orders. Now, some signals are not costly, but they still enhance credibility. Right? If uh, you cross a bridge, right, it signals that the bridge is uh, safe. So we live in a world where we cannot easily rely on other people's moral record as conveyed by gossip to identify those we can trust. Right? Our society is now too large. We move too much. For, for reputation tracking to be as reliable as we would like. Gossip may not reach us, so we need formal systems of regulation. That helps, but uh, religious observance, all right, that, that's hard to fake signal of trustworthiness, right? So often co-religionists seek one another out as business partners. So you had Quakers in the early years of British industry were very successful. You have Jews who do a lot of business with fellow Jews, Right, so credibility-enhancing displays, costly signals of religious commitments are moral signals. Right, they're signs of willingness to abide by certain publicly proclaimed moral norms. They're ways of signaling our virtue. So I wear a yarmulke, right? That is a way of signaling my virtue, my commitment to traditional Judaism. And it comes with some cost because it's off-putting for, for, many, for many people who aren't Orthodox Jews. There, there are many job interviews that I've got on where they absolutely would not hire me because I, I wore a yarmulke. Yeah, giving a vote of confidence to virtuous behavior is a good thing. I guess, where do you virtue signal, right? That's, you know, some virtue signaling is of no use to me. So if you virtue signal that you're anti-racist, right, that you're a socialist, that uh, you're all for gender equity, Right? That doesn't make me think that you're a good person. Right? Societies are secularizing, so religious virtue signals no longer have the same power, so we've increasingly turned to secular virtue signaling. So the faithful would join in public worship with singing, with tithing, with public prayer, with witnessing about their faith, all right? and that was a way to religiously virtue signal. Uh, strong emotions, right, are hard to fake. So if you really feel strongly about something, that's often virtue signaling. So think of like uh, people who self-flagellate or the voluntary crucifixions at Easter, Shia self-flagellation during various religious observances, the degradation of the self that many Catholics engaged in, right? So religious people have consistently competed to show how devout they are. So good virtue signals are hard to fake, they're costly, they're self-validating. So the facial and bodily expressions of emotion are involuntary, they're hard to fake, blushing and flushing. Right? Those are classic examples of typically involuntary, therefore hard to fake expressions of emotion and with them, you know, virtue signaling. So a central function of moral discourse is signaling commitment to certain moral standards. So the claim that virtue signaling represents a perversion of this function is on very shaking ground. Virtue signaling is not merely a central function of public moral discourse, 
it is the one that ought to be in play. So virtue signaling overwhelmingly is virtuous. If it's virtue signaling on a virtue that you hold by, and if you don't hold by the virtues of, of anti-racism, then obviously you know virtue signaling in, in that department is not going to be terribly impressive to you. So this is Neil Levy on decoding the gurus. It just functions very differently in a different context. It expresses quite different propositions. Yeah, very true. Yeah, we've, we've had tea on the show. Yeah, it was it was it was great. Um, but coming back to to your red flags for intellectual virtue signaling, as you could tell by Chris my expressions, with just like every one of those red flags we see in virtually every case of our more toxic gurus. So this is just, I mean, I, I might be helpful just to quickly go through them and just point out what we see. So first of all, that confidence and certainty. I mean, take take any of our gurus, but maybe let's just take one example for each. Like maybe Nassim Taleb, if you've come across him, you know, all of the statisticians are idiots. Right? They're all stupid. They, they don't take into account black swans. They don't understand about long tails. They're trapped in this normal distribution land. Only he knows. And he, he does, he's like a steamroller. He, he, would never, he would never back down, never surrender. But you know, he's, just, he's just one example. They, they all do that. But that's signaling of quickness in mind and intellectual autonomy. The example that I think springs to mind as best is um, Jordan Peterson, who has, I, I feel like most of our gurus become caricatures of themselves over time as, as they continually sort of ratchet up. Their, their presentation. And you can see it with Jordan, who in his mannerisms, in the way he speaks, the way he dresses, everything about the setup is, is intended to communicate that this is a deep and profound thinker. And, you know, most of the people who are good at this tend to be very um, loquacious. They're, they're very good speakers. And that I think, well, what do you think? Do you think, I mean, do you, do you feel that people just interpret the facility with language and, and a decent vocabulary being fluent is, is, is just a signifier of intellectual profundity? So, you know, one of the things I talk about is in order to signal your, your intellectual value, you, you can manifest it. One of the difference between moral virtue signaling and in this kind of context where there's no face-to-face -face interaction and you just can't check up on the person is, is talk is cheap and it's really hard to manifest your virtue. I mean, what are you going to do? You know, show a receipt of your donation to Black Lives Matter or, or whatever it might be? That looks like you're trying too hard. And so, you know, it tips over into something that's no longer signaling virtue at all. But with the intellectual virtues, you can actually manifest them. You can you know, you can provide equations, you can provide links to papers, and you can talk about them in ways that seem knowledgeable. You know, the original Guru Effect paper by Sperber actually says, not only are people impressed by this, but I think this is often missed about Sperber's paper. Uh, they should be impressed by this. Actually, you know, quantifying, formalizing is making your, your work hostage to fortune and hostage to people who can check up on it. I should, I should take your equation seriously because I know if they're bullshit, somebody will call them out, even though I can't call them out. Um, so you're going to want to back it up in one way or another. One way to do it is by some kind of um, technical language. You can talk about long tails and the normal distribution and black swans. And, or you can talk in a kind of complex way, which sounds as though it's very carefully hedged and it's uh, plumbing the depths of the, uh, the ineffable nature of reality to reveal the true quantum interactions that... Uh, whatever it might be. That's another way of, signal, of signaling your, your intellectual prowess. And even when it's, you don't, in fact, know what you're talking about, it does require skill to do it. So it's, it is a, a self-certifying signal of some kind of intellectual value or intellectual power. Something that springs to mind there, though, Neil, is that you can have the case where, like, for example, when I think about my own interest in the parapsychology field, it had a you know an interest in it and the various topics there, and I still teach about a lot of the research papers there. And there's obvious effort that goes into conducting research in parapsychology. And I'm not going to throw all of the researchers that engage in that into the same bucket, but I will say a substantial amount of the research in that area has the form of science and and rigor 
but some very fundamental lacking components. And you and you see the same thing on Twitter where you will see somebody construct a massive threat about Ukraine or you know about COVID. And by all the external markers, it looks like a thread you can trust and it's intellectual. It's citing studies, there's graphs, there's you know references to details in papers. But if you know the area and not just on COVID but on anything, if you dig into it, you can tell it's empty, right? It's intellectual calories are not there. It's kind of all surface. And often the references are to terrible papers. The statistics are just completely misinterpreted. And in that case, it feels like while there's a skill involved to constructing it, and it's definitely like an intellectual endeavor of sorts, it's a bit like a cuckoo masquerading as something which it isn't. And I, it feels like, particularly in the kind of stuff we do, that there are there are like intellectual charlatans who who are very very good at you know appearing intellectually sophisticated, but who have what are ultimately badly informed and very superficial takes on things. So I'm I'm kind of wondering, you know, those skills they seem like we should still distinguish between the intellectual nutrition, which is at the base of them. I yeah, I think there are cases and cases. I think there are people out there who are genuinely attempting to hone in on, on, on what they see as the truth and using genuine, the genuine sorts of capacities you would hope would be deployed. And they're deploying them with, with, a, with ability. It's simply that they've cut themselves off from, they no longer take testimony of other, of you know, people who uh, are either their peers or... So I noticed a lot of people talking on Twitter about Lex Friedman. He's released his reading list for the next year and most people are kind of mocking it because it's just so earnest, like with... with almost everything Lex Friedman does, just incredibly earnest and it, it kind of reeks of uh, something that's being performed that this you know, reading list is to show you what, what a serious intellectual he is. Many people are mocking him that he's setting aside a, a week to uh, read, to read uh, the Brothers Karamazov by, uh, by Dostoevsky and I want to, I want to bring you some Okay, so here. hello and Come welcome on. to the Grometer. Come on. I just wanted to defend them. It was heartwarming just to see internet drama that means absolutely nothing <laughs> uh, <laughs> unite everyone together in, in takes at the beginning of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we should tell people, we should tell people, you know, give them a rough idea of the book list. It was oh, yeah, because it's like... That's right. There are people that are not so online. So, like, uh, yeah, he did a he did a little thirty books that he's planning to read or reread in twenty twenty three. Yeah, I think it was like one a week somehow. But yeah, it can't week. be thirty. Must be fifty two or whatever. Whatever the case might be, it's a list of books and examples, Matt. Or what kind of things was on his list that caused people to get excited okay so let's let's test my memory so i remember there was kafka's metamorphosis there and let's go to the chat all right art bell is in the house luke is such a virtue signaler mr medica says he wants gamergate to be buried with him i suspect luke is slowly starting to miss some of his stuff in la a few key items he left off the list maybe i'm missing my friends maybe i'm missing my religious community Maybe I'm missing, you know, my favorite 12-step meetings. Uh, maybe, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to being back in L.A. Like, it took her three months. <laughs> three months is, is a long time to, to leave home. Uh, but it seems seems appropriate. Probably next time I come back to Australia, I might just uh, go for two months. 
So I'm already kind of planning a big road trip. Next time I come to Australia, I want to drive all the way across Australia from, from the west to the east. No, from the east to the west, from, from Sydney to Perth and back again. And I'd also like to drive from the very bottom of Australia to the, the top of Australia. So I'm, I'm planning my, my, ne my next trip. Samuel Bankman Freed needs Luke Ford's books, and suddenly we would find Luke animated and semi forgiving. Sociopath Luke. Yeah, his reading was a lot of uh, banned books like 1984. Andrew Dice Luke. I noticed the conspicuous absence of uh, the book Siege. <laughs> yeah, Lex uh, Friedman's reading habit. It just. If someone else had, had presented the list, it wouldn't have gotten the reaction it does. But with Lex Friedman, someone who's not neurotypical, someone who's uh, very performative, like it just didn't didn't seem genuine, and it's just so earnest. That this and and the 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 mildest criticism, right? If Lex gets the mildest criticism, he immediately blocks someone. It was Camus, the stranger. There was Marcus Aurelius's meditations. There was oh, there was some. There was Ian Banks. An author I really like, player of games, I think it was. Uh, what am I forgetting? What other books? The Art of War. Don't forget that. Important to know oh, of course. your enemies. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Animal that's, Farm. That's right. Fight Club. Uh, oh, oh, Fight the, Club. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the Brothers. Karamazov. Karamazov. Yep. The Brothers Karamazov, uh, Dostoevsky. Uh, yeah, so it was very, it was a very Lex list. And people dunked on him because it was, well, first of all, it was kind of the basic list. Like, like they're all good Study books. And Chris, I had to, I mentioned to you. Really <laughs> and I got to tell and everyone here. Uh, Kelly Means, thank you. Oh, no, I missed thank this you, story. So Chicago, an amazing, a wonderful American city, has become so dangerous that people are leaving. So dangerous that this summer, the teenage brother of our friend, Gianna Caldwell, here at Fox, was murdered there. So we wanted to talk with Jenna Caldwell about his life, what it was like to grow up in a poor part of Chicago and what has happened to the city. We had a really remarkable conversation and our respect for him just increased exponentially. Here's part of it from Tucker Carlson today. Okay, so looking at the chat, John Smith says, I don't know why, Lex Friedman is torturing himself with these books. He'd be better off reading the Jack Ryan series by Tom Clancy. But you learn a lot reading Tom Clancy. Steve Sandler makes this point. If you, if you want to know what would happen if the United States went to war with China or there was some other you know, military conflict in the world, Tom Clancy had a gift for getting to the essence of, uh, of war, uh, of what a, a war would, would look like. So Tom Clancy books, they're excellent, right? They're not just entertaining and compelling and just you know, take you along a very you know fast fun journey, but you also learn a ton about uh, military hardware, technology, you know, the, the relative balance of powers between countries. So yeah, two, two thumbs up for Tom Clancy. I've, I've probably read a dozen Tom Clancy books. Don't regret it. Right. Back to decoding the gurus on Lex Friedman's reading list. I've I actually read them all. <laughs> <laughs> I've read everything on I've read every book on that list. Although, as I told you, I didn't quite finish uh Stapiens, which was um 
Ferrari, I think is the author. Oh, yeah. Um, because it wasn't very good. And I didn't finish Mark Sorelis' Meditations because, I don't know, it was all right. But, you know, I'm, I'm not really into that kind of thing. Yeah, it's sort of uh, like... It- so that's genuine, right? When someone talks about some highly touted book, right, and says he, he quit it, right? That just feels genuine. Uh, when, when Lex Friedman does this stuff, it just feels fake and autistic and weird and earnest. It, it, the thing that it caused was it, it looks like the list of, I mean, it looks like a list that of my bookshelf potentially as a, like a teenager or a 20 something undergraduate. Like it's, it's kind of, if you ask chat GBT, to generate a a pretentious list for a male undergraduate student, this is yeah, this is like, what they would generate. It, it would. So I remember reading some highbrow essay trying to argue a case that Tom Clancy was anti-Semitic. So I I, I don't buy it. But anyway. Back to decoding the gurus, Lex Friedman's reading. Yeah, it would be. It's the list of the male undergraduate with intellectual pretensions, of which I was one. Right? Yeah, I was, me too. I was, a, I was a pretentious kid, and that's why I read all those books. I read them probably between the ages of fifteen and. Wow! Got a fourteen dollar super chat from Media Hits, a real stalwart of the show. Norio Peace Force ninety one Jew punks, N O F X not sure what any of this means but as long as i'm not going to get a copyright strike here that's uh this week also i, I, I still have more time next week also is the positive force uh, benefit there's going to be there's going to be a bit there's going to be a videotape uh of uh bombing that was inside iraq it was whatever banned from television or something like that we have a videotape of it we're going to show that to people uh it's going to be false prophets sticks and stones grit uh Rejuvenate, I guess, and uh, the guitarist of Urgent Fury, Urgent Fury, doing an acoustic set, and so it's going to be a benefit for Positive Force, you know, all the stuff, the great stuff they do here in New York, and uh, so basically you all come down and show up, that's a cool show, and no, I'm not going to announce that, Bill, because the uh, no effects came a long way to play, so there you go. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. We're the NoFX band. And I'm the new guy. Yeah, we, we, we kind of changed the name from NoFX to The NoFX. Kind of like an older punk rock kind of thing, yeah. Can you hear you? Are you in there? Check. 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 This, uh, this is our guitar player, Steve. He got a nationality change operation. Mexican now. Looks good, too, huh? Not bad. We call him El Jefe. But you can call me El Guapo. So that's how it be our first punk number for the evening. Okay, is this getting gonna get me a copyright strike, mate? What are you doing to me? Okay, I'm a, I, I'm afraid to to play music. I have absolutely no idea what any of that is about. Maybe you can provide more more details in the in the chat. El Jefe, that's what my gardeners call me. Says the chat. Lex Friedman's reading list. Nineteen. 
and uh, and look, they're good books. Like they're good books. That's not, they, you know they're 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 very popular and they're classics for for a reason. Um, but I, I think people were reacting. It, it's not so much. It's not so much that it, it was the the way Lex approaches these things with a kind of a leaden seriousness and earnestness, and he is like forty years old, and 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 treats it as like a like a like a like a rigor or a discipline or something to sort of get through like a self improvement regimen. Um, yeah, I, I think you know it's just very Lex, and it 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 you can understand why it does rub people the wrong way a little bit. Yeah, so it's it's like it's kind of perfect fodder because on the one hand, like it's going to invite scorn and derision, I think justifiably, <laughs> um, and and then inevitably that derision is going to be called elitist and mean, and why are you dugging on someone for just reading books? And then you know, like somebody else will. It, it's just it's. It's too too perfect, and it's it's like a trap set by Wiley Coyote for for culture war people, and and yeah. that yeah. and that's what Chris, happened. Yeah, Chris, I described it to you as like a like a like a Rorschach test for 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 takes and for signal what you want to signal about yourself and whatever. It was just a it was a perfect like you said. It's just a perfect little Twitter gem because that's what Twitter is made for. That's what Twitter's made for. Absolutely nonsense like that. That doesn't matter in the slightest. It gives everyone a chance to act, uh, to, you know, dismissive and holier than thou and all the rest. Oh, it's and the, the one I love is like people connecting whatever the debate about is, you know, to a larger thesis that they have <laughs> about yep. how social yep. dynamics apply or that kind of thing. So it's like, the Lex Friedman reading list criticism, it, it is like not important except it highlights this dynamic, which is very important, right? And you, you're just like, oh, it's a, and, and you know, by engaging in meta commentary on it, we are, we are part of that ecosystem. We're, we are no better than the other, but it's just, yeah, I think the one thing that like that you can win slightly by is by like, it's it's per- like the thing which gets me is it's perfectly fine to dunk and it's perfectly fine to be like not to complain about dunkers or whatever, but like just, you know, just own it in a sense, right? Like if you want to defend Lex, like just, just defend him because you like him. If you want to dunk on him for it being like, you know, if you just want to dunk to have fun, then just dunk and have fun, but don't like, don't clear yeah. it's some... Don't, don't. Yeah, don't don't invest it with gravitas. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't you know, matter. I mean, it, and you know, look, I, I saw people defending it, you know, for the obvious reason, which is like he's just a guy. He's you know, he's he's in very lex fashion, he's he's earnest and he's 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 simple and naive and he, he's sharing his book list because he and, and you know, what's wrong with that? You know, anything that gets people reading is is a good thing. These aren't bad books, you know. Why do you have to be so negative? So I saw people defending him who don't particularly like him and don't know anything about him. I think that's a reasonable it is a reasonable point of view. No, it, I mean it is, but it's just it's all mad. come on, like not come on, come on, mad. That's I did too harsh. But I mean like I I just got the you know Neil Levy talking about intellectual Virtue signaling. Okay, let's uh, try out Tucker Carlson here. 
and puffing for us until tomorrow night. No, it's finishing. There's a lot going on, so that'll be an interesting no. show. In the meantime, have a wonderful evening. No, no, sorry. I totally blew it. Totally blew it tonight. Right, like, I can't help but think about that when I see people trying oh, yes. to g- give, like, this, you know... This was in, this was intellectual virtue signaling all the way down. So so Lex, Lex's original thing was like a almost... I mean, he, he's not sort of virtue signaling. He's very earnest, right? But he... But he, he, I mean, he is. He is. He's, 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 he's attempting to. Wanting to. He's attempting to increase his intellectual virtue in a, in in his own way, which is genuine. Because I think he really does want to read these books. But and that's his brand, right? To share that yeah. with the world and the people that were dunking on it for being basic was were also intellectually virtue signaling, right? And because the people defending it. Saying like actually these books are important and blah blah blah. There, it's it's like you say is that's what Twitter is for, <laughs> in a, in a <laughs> sense. And uh, yeah, the like Lex posted today about getting cancelled, um, for his reading this, and I was just like, you weren't, you're not cancelled. You're just getting dunked on, right? That's not cancellation. <laughs> that's. And, and he also said, uh, you know, life is more fun when you help people succeed instead of wishing for them to fail or whatever, you know, a kind of Lexi thing. But I was I was just thinking about, you know, that that sentiment. You also saw, which inevitably happens when this kind of dunk happens, Lex just blocking loads of people, uh, you know, for like yeah. mild criticism oh, yeah. and them saying... <laughs> Oh, I, you know, I don't think you're going to be able to read that book in a month or a week. And he, he, he blocks them. And you're just like, yeah, like, it's, like he blocked. I, I saw a thing like he was a total fan, like a big fan of Lex's said, you know, great, great reading list, et cetera. But I don't think you're going to read the Brothers Karamazov in a week. Block. Yeah, but that's so that's the thing which I, you know, Lex, I, all this stuff about I love all my haters equally and you know it's just it does not match up with his like you know his etiquette or that and and that's a good leader Matt because like the reason for mentioning Lex in this circumstance is he actually managed to in almost every message he includes like Twitter is being really fun 2023 on Twitter is going to be really interesting and and stuff right because he he just has to constantly signal to Elon about how how fun Twitter is now for him. And, you know, after we listened to the Elon content, this was something that we 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 noticed all over the place. Just the amount of crawling directed towards Elon. It's uh Yeah, it's uh it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. All right, Dave Pizarro, very, very bad widows. Okay. My dad and psychologist Dave Pizarro. Okay, it's interesting but... in its emptiness. Um, let, let me just leave it that and let the email, email Tamler. Um, okay. Don't email me. I, I think that's <laughs> appalling. That's worse than you not having seen the third man. Although you now have seen the third have man, seen right? Third man, yeah. Been on a big noir kick. Yes. Which I would like to take a little credit for. Uh, you, you definitely deserve credit for this. Okay. Big Lebowski is in fact a better film than Pulp Fiction and rightly so, even if he cannot adduce empirical proof to that effect. But any serious discussion on the relative merits of modern cinema must include at least a brief, brief mention of Swingers from 1996 featuring Vince Vaughn when he was still skinny. Good point. John Favreau, Ron Livingston, and a pre-roller girl, Heather Graham. 
by any measure, this was a huge oversight and maybe even a moral violation. The only thing I want to say is there are two categories of film. Well, there are many categories, but there are two categories of good film that is relevant to this particular comment. One is a great film for its time. Like the kind of film that you really enjoyed watching. You probably enjoyed watching two or three times. Uh, lots of funny moments. But when you watch it now, eh, you know, I, I don't know that I would recommend it to somebody who I wouldn't say, oh, my God, I can't believe you've never seen you've never seen swingers. swingers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, OK. I mean, look, I, I actually think it's a movie you can watch a few times, maybe not too many times, certainly not as often. The big- well, this is not the timestamp that, that I expected here. Come on. Also, don't have as much of a inclination in even when it helps me to to obey authority or right. what if they were uh, german like the other person on the other side <laughs> oh well, then i would do it even <laughs> yeah, yeah well i mean yeah i mean eye for an eye right uh, so, so. what if they were from one of those minorities that really aren't worth as much as you <laughs> those, uh, those get that drop producer we really need a producer to get drops like that because you say you know like you're the nicer guy on the podcast but then every <laughs> once in a while you come out with something it's just beyond the pale yeah, it's okay some of my best friends are minorities um <laughs> Here's, a, I think, the big question, Hamler, which is, how distressing is this? So it could be distressing. Uh, yeah, it could yeah, be distressing okay. for a number of reasons. But one, one of the big reasons why uh, people find it to be distressing, and and this is what um, sort of the the Zimbardo take home message too, was you think that your behavior is a product of your beliefs and your principles and your attitudes, but all of that goes out the window given the right situation. And there's certainly some truth to this in that I'm sure if we were all in sort of dire straits and we had, it was either kill or be killed, you know, we're capable of killing, right? Or, right, but that's not what this is that's about. Not what this, this isn't kill or the be killed. This, this, is <laughs> this is shock or just say, no, fuck no, I'm not going to shock this man to death just because you tell me. To. And these- Okay, talking here about the Stanford prison experiments and John M. Doris's perspectives on situationism. David By the Zorro. way, Milgram, these, he wasn't recruiting just undergraduates. He was recruiting sort of local New Havenites. So normal people, good, healthy, non-messed up people. Um, some high percentage of them are, are shocking people. They believe that they're – I mean – Think about this. So, by the way, these experiments are considered completely unethical now. And, in fact, Milgram did not get tenure at Yale. Uh, in Did he not? I didn't know that. No, and really? Lord, he ended up going to Harvard because that's where that's where losers who can't stick it out at Yale go. Um, and, uh, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, Cesaro is now doing like a Harvard-Yale. I'm going to talk like this from now on. <laughs> So, yeah, no, he didn't get tenure. And there's an interesting story uh, that I have about this that I didn't tell you, actually, and, and I don't. There, most people don't know. I was, when I was a graduate student, we were in the basement of the Yale Psychology Department, and there was a part that hadn't been renovated. Mazarin Banaji's lab space was right next to this old storage area. And one day I just went in there with a friend of mine, and there was all there were all these old file cabinets, like those old you know classic cast iron uh, filing cabinets that you can. Yeah, yeah. And we start looking through the files, and what we find is old faculty files from professors. At, now Yale has like a really deep tradition in psychology, so the, and so these are going back 
to the beginning of the Yale psychology department. And we're looking through these files and we find Stanley Milgram's file. I, I shit, you know, I swear this actually happened. We find yeah. Stanley Milgram's file. We open it up and in that his file was his tenure, his entire tenure file. And all of the letters from psychologists whom we would recognize now if we were in psych- if you're in psychology uh, in some week you wouldn't obviously but tenure letters recommending him uh, a, a good and they were just deeply split some of them were like i cannot believe that this guy even has a job what he's doing is completely unethical and i kind of agree with those i mean he was convincing people that they were you know i was giving i was giving has there, di- been, has there been some sort of report on what those people you know the people who were in it who went all the way the 65 percent of the people how they felt about themselves afterwards like what kind of debriefing can you do we were giving a hard time about, about like people <laughs> people like stealing a dollar and these people like left thinking they killed people somebody. think they yeah. They killed somebody. No, they were, de- or they, they they were, were all capable debriefed. of killing somebody. Yeah, they were all what? debriefed, and and they were very. Well, of course debriefed. they were debriefed, but like, how do you debrief that out of somebody? Yeah, I don't, I don't know about about the follow ups. They still do it though. I mean, not in America, but in uh, England, uh, one of the replications we'll link to. You know, there was there was there's one, and you see they're tortured. These people, these poor people, you, your heart goes out to them because they're it, it's 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 hurting them yeah. to do it, but they still do it. They still press. Man, I really screwed up on, on the timestamps. There were some hilarious moments of this episode. Right, Very Bad Wizards is the name of the show. Right, David Pizarro and his uh, co-host here, Tamlar. Oh, yeah, Sudafed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that's why you have to show your driver's license to buy, like, pseudoephedrine or whatever. Like, do you still have to? Because I don't think you I, – I, we had to do it in California, you do. Yes. In California, you do. yeah. Because there was every fourth house was just a meth lab. It was a meth lab. Uh, yeah, that's my yeah. kind of town. Well, rural, rural. Who needs yeah. fuck, fuck teeth? You know, it's like <laughs> it's, it's, it's at this point they're vestigial. What with you know modern dentistry. <laughs> Have you ever done like really good speed or something like that? No, like actual meth. Actual like, no, meth. No, no, I can't say that I have, and, and I think that at this point I've admitted enough that I would admit that. Um, uh, yeah, well, I, so I, I have. Uh, <laughs> Why are you still like, fat? What? <laughs> Why am I still fat? Just kidding. You're not fat. Um, no, you think I'm fat. Uh, <laughs> no, all I'm saying is I get it. Yeah. I get I get why people are at. It's not like this thing where you know it's uh, you know these people have to be crazy. I mean it's 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 good. I mean fortunately right. I only did it once or twice, and I can never I can never get addicted to any drug because everyone thinks automatically that I'm a narc. Uh, <laughs> anyway, like that's I'm just everybody's first assumption, yeah. uh, right? And then they say that to me. We ta- I hope we haven't talked about this. No, no, we haven't. I can where, guarantee where you. People that will say I, I, people say are, are you a cop? And I'll say no, I'm not a cop. And then they'll say you know you have to tell me if uh, you're a cop. Yeah, that's I don't know where, where that urban <laughs> legend came from. Can you imagine if that were true? Like, like if you actually had. To admit that you were a cop, like how many under, undercover operations would just be blown? And, and not only that, but the idea that this little 18, 19 year old is going to remind an actual <laughs> undercover cop, it's like, oh yeah, shit, I forgot about that. Okay, <laughs> about yes, no, I, I am no, a cop, they, sorry, god they, damn it. You know, that, well, I'm glad you reminded me, this has been a clear <laughs> case of entrapment. Uh, <laughs> and actually, I guess entrapment is, is sort of a theme for the show today. Uh, in some ways, the situ- wow, this is a good segue. The yeah. situation is like an entrapment for people in terms of doing really immoral things, things you wouldn't think that you were capable of. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. But let's first try to introduce a, a segment on listener email. How do you feel about that? Or listener feedback. And, we, and, and we're doing this in part because we want to thank the people who have sent us some emails. But and right. they will learn about us. That's the only reason I care. So, right. like so, so, so like us and then do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. right. Okay, so so yeah, Ch- uh, Chip Ellsworth III, uh, I assume not his real name. That would be really weird if it were. Um, 
be a coincidence. Uh, yeah, coinc- coincidence, if it were. Uh, left us a, a very nice review on, on iTunes, uh, but he ended it with, quote, but I do have one complaint. At one point, Professor Summers, very nice of you to refer to him as Professor, argues that The Big Lebowski is in fact a better film than Pulp Fiction, and rightly so. That's my beef. Whatever. We won't, we won't get into why Pulp Fiction. You really have a huge beef with no, Big no, no, Lebowski being better than Pulp, <sighs> Pulp Fiction? <laughs> well, and also, I mean, that's just the stuff you just skip over yeah. when you're watching it again I think, on DVD. Yeah. But, but let me say with this about Swingers also is, and I'd be interested from some of our younger listeners, some of the modern replications, but you can also see some of the original videos. So, so the, the original experiment was made, was designed by Stanley Milgram. Right. And so, so, so describe the experiment. Right. So in a nutshell, because I suspect many of our listeners will already be very familiar with this, but, but the gist is some, uh, you bring somebody to the lab and you tell them that they're going to participate in an experiment on learning, which was the, do, you know, the dominant experiments in, uh, during this time. We're learning experiments, right? These were from rat and pigeon learning all the way to human learning. The question was how does uh, reward reinforcement and punishment affect learning that's the cover story seems really plausible you uh tell somebody that what you're interested in is the effect of punishment on learning and this is by the way why we played that wonderful ghostbusters clip at the beginning uh <laughs> it was you gotta see we, we definitely posted a clip we he's we just shocked it couldn't be more inappropriate all right so uh, uh there was nobody on the other side no one was getting shocked but it was an elaborate ruse. There was a video tape. I mean, an audio tape of the other. Five percent went all the way up to three hundred to, to, to no to four hundred fifty. Like well after the videos, that it really it wasn't that it's not that psychopaths are necessary to do these things. It's that any person, at least, at least many people, whom who would never expect that they themselves were capable of this, or we would never expect they were capable of this, are are delivering what they believe to be lethal shocks. And so the analogy to the or Holocaust could be, is yeah. obvious, right? Do you th- what do you think you would have done in that situation? I mean, I know this is the whole point: is you can't at, you can't answer that question yeah, with any confidence. I'm pretty sure, assuming that you didn't know the setup of the experiment what do you th- what category do you think you would have been in in that it's, it's, it's hard to answer but so but here's here's my answer given my level of of say intelligence and education without being a psychologist and without being a social psychologist who, who has to think about this all the time i'm pretty sure i would have done it like I'm you would have gone all the yeah, way yeah, i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure i think that that it's that it's huh. that it's what i've chosen to think about in life that has made me i'm sort of pre-committed to when if, if i think that i'm gonna get into one of those situations i'm now pre-committed to not right. doing it but I, right, you know right. i i'm pretty i don't know i'm pretty I'm, I'm, You'll conform. Yeah, well, I, conformity is a weird word in this case, but I, I think I uh, I don't want to upset authority. Like, I, you know, it's not like I don't think of the Yale psychology department. And we're looking through these files, and we find Stanley Milgram's files. Kind of, yeah, exactly. Like, what? It's just, yeah, yeah, no, I know. Like, how am I supposed to react to this right, kind right. of laughter? So, okay, let's get to the point the strong, about the, 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 like, what the takeaway message. Okay, here's the, here's the strong conclusion. Nazi Germany can happen any given – it could have just been me and you. It could have easily right. been me and you. There's actually not, not only that, but what that leads us to conclude is that um, – you know, don't whatever whatever our feelings about uh, the harm that was caused by by say Nazi Germany. Uh, one of the things that we really aren't allowed to feel is too much sort of blame for those individual people. Right? We can say that it was a tragedy, but but a tragedy in the same way that hurricanes are tragedies, right? like a tsunami or something. Yeah, like, that, like yeah. Uh, that, that, um, that there is there is no real evil blame in it. And Zimbardo takes Zimbardo takes the strong the strong line, right? Um, he takes it mostly. Well, we can talk about that yeah, in the yeah, second yeah. segment. He takes it for everybody that's not at the top, right? That's not because he blames the situation, but then he also blames the people that are framing the situation. So he might blame the Goerings and the Hitlers and the Himmlers of Nazi Germany as setting up this kind of situation where otherwise good people could do horrible things. Right. So so I guess is Zimbardo saying that, uh, that you know there, there is responsibility? Is, is he saying there is more responsibility for this at the top or just that they're, they're, their problem is something? I want to talk about that because okay. it's an interesting thing because it's not clear why he can say that. Right. Presumably there's a situation even for the Hitlers and Goerings and, you know, he, he said it in the context of Cheney and Bush and Condoleezza Rice with the Abu Ghraib. Right. Uh, right. During the Abu Ghraib uh, scandal, there was a huge the Abu, Abu Ghraib scandal, but but let's, let's talk about that in the second segment. So so so, so go on what you're saying that it, the, the strong message is that could happen anywhere and that it's not anybody's fault. There was this this novel, right? Uh, not a novel, it was a nonfiction book called Hitler's Willing Executioners. Right. Do you know about yeah, this? Yeah. Where you know he was essentially arguing the opposite point right. that there's something about the German people right. that only 
to them could and, this kind right. of thing and, happen. And there's something comforting about that thought that it's bad people and that it's evil people because the thought that anybody could do this is, is really disturbing. I mean, this is why um, I think I've mentioned that, but it's on my mind. I just recently um, submitted the final version of, of a chapter that I'm I, I'm writing with Roy Baumeister on on comic book villains. And speaking of German, <laughs> yeah, speaking of German, and um, there's something, and it's really funny when you read, especially these like Silver Age comics where where uh, like the the X Men, like their enemies are the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Like the, like they would actually call themselves evil, like and go around like, yeah, let's do evil. <laughs> it's ridiculous, and it would never happen because the people who are actually doing those things don't think that they're doing evil. But it's really well. That's the question, right? Do those people in the Milgram experiments think that they're behaving? You know, if, if you ask them right now, is this the right thing to do? Do they think they're behaving in a way that's morally acceptable, right. or do they think they that it's morally unacceptable but they can't help it? You know, it's just right. I, yeah. I, it, it's it's very it's, it's, it would be interesting to get into. I always wonder another experiment, the Ash conformity experiments. Right. Um, right we're right. linked to these two. It's a very whether they actually believe famous it. Famous one. Whether they act, you know, they they show these lines. No, and, you know, and, in, the, in the experiment, in those cases, they actually say no, no. See, I knew it was wrong. Like they say that. Yeah, after, and a lot of people right. in the Milgram experiments, they at the end, even though they went all the way, they're like, oh, yeah, see. They like are like I knew I knew it was wrong to be doing like thank God I, thank God it wasn't real. Is that just post hoc? Well, uh, it's like like making that making yourself feel better. That in a dollar, you know, you know, it's like like at that point, if you know, that in a dollar gets you uh, <laughs> like the, the dollar cost. <laughs> like it really doesn't matter what they, it really doesn't matter what they're saying afterwards. You know, like imagine like all, well, all the Nazis saying like, well, yeah, you know, I told I told my commander like. No, no, no. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter in terms of if you're one of the concentration camp victims, but it's an interesting question yeah. whether the sort of the phenomenology of it is. I'm actually you're, you're so transformed that you actually are your moral categories are upside down, and you think what's wrong is right, and you actually think I'm doing the right thing. Right, right. Or whether it's like when you eat veal or something like that, and you're like, I know this is wrong, but I can't <laughs> right. help it. And That's I know a good you question. You, and I suspect you know, that, I suspect that both things are going on, and maybe the ones who are actually in the, have the power to make the decisions think that they're doing it for the greater good, and then they justify it, um, and then you know maybe the underlings are not. But I, I don't know if it was answered. Well, I, and in fact, what I'm saying is pretty anecdotal from from the reports of people after the experiments. So, um, so I don't know whether or not people had convinced themselves that it was for the greater good, or whether they just felt like they had a gun to their head. And I think that part of Milgram's point is just me being in a lab coat and telling them to keep doing it feels like you have a gun to your head, and that you and you're willing to do all kinds of crazy things. Um, and there's a bunch of other dynamic. The way that it's phrased, the experiment requires that you continue, means that it's not you that's doing right. it; uh, it's the experiment that's doing it. Right. It's a way of distributing or, or or deflecting the responsibility from what you're actually, uh, so that it's not you that it's it's, it's sort of like it has to happen. Right. And and you're just happen to be the conduit of it. Right. It's, um, like, it's almost giving you, excluding you from future moral responsibility. Um, that's right. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, combine, let, let me just, before we, we uh, take a little break and talk more about sort of the sort of philosophical implications and whether this view is right or not, let me just say that, that this experiment combined with the Stanford Prison Experiment and then really just combined with a great deal of social psychology showing the power of the situation to override basic sort of individual differences, like, you know, showing that, that maybe personality variables that we think of as stable and, and of causing behavior really aren't that stable um, when you look at the influence of the situation. That is, you know, extroverts on a personality test can easily be made to be introverts depending on the situation and vice versa. And really, this is the deep tradition within social psychology to try to argue this point, that the situation engulfs, right, it overwhelms anything like character. And when you get into the moral domain, this has some really, really serious implications. The Milgram and Zimbardo stuff is just, they're just particularly good examples of this, but there's plenty of other evidence. Um, and this has led some philosophers uh, to conclude, hey, maybe this whole character, moral character and virtue and vice thing is just not, uh, is, is just not the right way to view human behavior. Maybe people just don't really deserve to be praised for their character. That's exactly the So I've often talked about the importance of situation that people don't really have moral character because we're different people in different situations. But this is philosopher David Pizarro arguing against situationism, that uh, this idea that uh, people are just simply different in different situations, no such thing as an essential moral character. All right, another $5 super chat here from Media Hits. 
wanting me to play Swedish soccer riot footage, but uh, it's just the same link. I, I think you sent the, the wrong link, uh, maybe hits. So send the right link. Back to uh, what we should talk about in the second segment. So let's take a break and we will, uh, and we will be right back. How did it harm you? How does it harm you? Just to think it, about it, it mean that people can be like that? It, yeah. It so let me in on... This is the discussion of the famous Stanley Milgram prison experiments. I think he conducted them at Stanford University. Some knowledge that, that I've never experienced firsthand. Uh, I've read about it. I've read a lot about it. But I've never experienced it firsthand. I've never seen someone turn that way. And I know you're a nice guy. You know? You, you understand? I do. I do know you're a nice guy. I don't, I don't get that because I know what you can turn into. It surprised me that no one said anything to stop me. No one, no one said, Carmen, you can't say those things to me. Those things are, are, are sick. Nobody said that. They just accepted what I said. I said, you know, go tell that man in the face he's a scum of the earth, and they do it without question. They do push up without question. They sit in the hole. They'd, uh, they'd abuse each other. And here they're supposed to have a little. They're supposed to be together as, as a unit in, in jail. But here they're, they're abusing each other because I requested them to, and no one questioned my authority at all. All right. Well, that's a clip from the. Well, it's two months after the Stanford prison experiment, which was took place in 1971. It was an experiment when they where they randomly divided um, college students, not from not all from Stanford, um, but college students who were psychologically screened so that they were healthy individuals, psychologically healthy individuals, and they just flipped a coin and said, half of you are going to be prisoners, half of you are going to be guards, and then they they put them in a prison kind of environment, and they Zimbardo played the role of the prison superintendent, and he said, uh, all right, well, now you've got to uh, keep control of these prisoners. And after, I think, like a day and a half, already one of the prisoners had had a nervous breakdown. By two two or three days, there was already horrible, uh, humiliating techniques used by the guards. These were just college kids. It's, uh, it's funny because in that clip, it doesn't, it's like such, those two are such the perfect, like, uh, sort of exemplars of a, hippie. a sort of hippie and authoritarian. Well, this is what he said about that. He said, all the, there's a lot of social movements, the hippies, love-ins, be-ins, he says. I don't know what that means. He said, I, I, mean, I should challenge him on that. What the fuck is a be-in? Uh, I don't know. Is that like Phil, the bottom? Phil, what's a be-in? Like it's like the top versus the bottom. <laughs> 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 the beat poets. What, what is a B in? In fact, I, I, I request the audience. I would like the audience to let me know what a B in. It's B-E slash I-N-S. Uh, all of it was here. And he said, and he said he, he thought the, the real reason he, he started the experiment was to see to what extent people would question authority, rebel against it. And he turned into a douchebag authority figure in the process. Himself, right. That's the most. I, I strongly urge people, first of all, to read my interview. I really need to do abdominal strengthening exercises, but whenever I start doing them, I, they're really hard because my, my abdomen is so weak. And so I, I was seeing these blokes doing, you know, these leg lifts, you know, you're on a certain uh, incline or decline, and then you, you need to lift your legs up. And I got like plum tuck it out. I mean, I couldn't even do one properly. And so that's a problem when you've got like a really weak something and you start doing exercises for that, that weak area of your body. And it's really, really hard because you're so weak. I, I got to Australia and I started swimming and I, I just get out of breath really quick. And, and then like a wave hits you, you know, you're out of breath. You're coming gasping for breath. And then like another wave comes and, you know, hits you and, you, you know, you dive under and come. And then, you know, another wave hits you or, you know, you get the snorkel on and you start snorkeling and you get out into the ocean and you're just like gasping for breath because you, you're so out of shape. Man, I haven't been doing my, my crunches like like I should. And, and I need to work on those those uh, leg lifts, right? I, I need to need to get my my beach body back. 
All right, David Pizarro and company, a couple of uh, philosophy professors here, talking about the importance or lack thereof of a situation, moral character, the Stanley Milgram prison experiment. ...with him, but especially to read his book, The Lucifer Effect, where he gives, it, he, he lays bare his own role and his own guilt about conducting the experiment. I, I didn't even finish describing it, but by the third day, they were, uh, there was a prison riot, uh, and there was all sorts of sexual humiliation uh, tactics that the guards were using against the prisoners. There was a hunger strike by the fourth day. By the sixth day, they called off the experiment because it was, well, it, it, they called off the experiment because they were all, there was a, a number of breakdowns, psychological breakdowns already, but also, Zimbardo said, because his, his girlfriend at the time, who ended up being his wife, just said... Okay, so Media Hits wants me to play some uh, more uh, punk rock footage. This is uh, Someone's Gonna Die, I I'm sure. There will be copyright violations if I play the music. But here we go, listen to philosophy professors speak and get some uh, punk rock footage. What the hell are you doing? Yeah, she was a graduate student at Berkeley, and she said, what are you doing? You can't keep doing this. And sort of shocked him out of his own role as the prison superintendent, which he had gotten so wrapped <laughs> up in that he had forgotten he was a scientist. So first of all, on the, on the third day, this is really funny, too. Zimbardo, as the prison superintendent, he actually called, he got obsessed with the idea that there was going to be a prison break-in, like some other people were going to try to break the prisoners out, some other students, and he called the police. <laughs> <laughs> the, the police, police, like what? what is it, what you can't, you can't, We're not gonna do anything about it. And he's like, like he's a psycho. But then, uh, but then a visiting colleague, he says, uh, asked them, came in to observe. He says, "What's the independent variable here?" And this is what he says from his book. He got really angry at the guy. He says, "Here I had an incipient riot on my hands. The security of my men and the stability of my prison were at stake, and I had to contend with this bleeding heart, liberal, academic, effete professor whose only concern was a ridiculous thing like an independent variable. You effete, liberal, academic. I have a break in my hands. What are you talking about?" independent variable and that was on the third day of the experiment so not only had there been just a breakdown with the students and there's really interesting stuff also in the book about he brought in this parole office uh, someone to play a parole officer who had been in prison himself uh for 20 years and had gone before parole boards 18 times and been turned down and he became a total dick like a one person who you would think would be so sensitive to so uh so, so the, the, the idea of this and we saw that a little bit from the clip is that you adopt the role that you are given and you become you take on that role you're not you anymore you know you're so, you know all i want the whole time you're telling the story all i want to do is there's a family guy episode where <laughs> stewie travels into the, it doesn't matter what, what's going on but an apartment gets burned down and the two, there's two firemen who are in the standing outside of the, the ashes of the apartment and one of them says to the other and it turns out that the stress candles caused the fire and they both look at each other and they go irony <laughs> That little irony is all I want to say about Zimbardo. Like day, th <laughs> day three, he's becoming like a prison guard. So that is so the main takeaway message that. Uh, from, from, yeah. from that. Uh, is that it might relate though. kind of loosely to a Family Guy episode. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I just downloaded Ted, but oh, I actually yeah. paid for it, which is something you wouldn't necessarily you know, just uh, understand. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but I'm. Uh, did you see Ted? Mm -hmm. I love mm -hmm. Ted. And I did not pay for it. Um, it's yeah, it's great. <laughs> All right. Uh, so 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 this is the again what you were talking about when we were uh, closing out the first segment, the very lengthy first segment, is that this question of whether we have these kind of character traits, um, and and there's a major tradition in, in moral philosophy called virtue ethics, which uh, the whole point of it is that excuse me, I just burped because of the beer. That <laughs> the whole point of it is you build these character traits, these virtues uh, like courage and generosity and empathy, and so that you will behave in uh, virtuous ways across a wide range of, of, of situations. And this seems to fly in the face of that because here you had these normally, as as the guy, as a hip one hippie says to the other hippie, I know you're a nice guy, but you were making me. This was the John Wayne guy with the scary cool hand Luke glasses, you know, mirror glasses, you know, who uh, he's like, I know you're a nice guy, but you know, you were putting a bag over my head, making me, you know, naked, like, starving me in my 
like you know like the Abu Ghraib stuff, which is how Zimbardo got back into this thing. And right. and, and, and it's and, and it just sort of flies in the face of this idea that we can count on our character and our you know moral education. I right, guess right. So right. So so Aristotle, you know, I think has a wonderful a wonderful take on this and like how you how you sort of develop these virtues in, in your life so that you you cultivate the right sorts of inclinations and emotions and habits and and you become a good guy. And Zimbardo here, it's day three, day three, <laughs> day like day three, and they're poking they're poking each other in the ass like, like literally Zimbardo doesn't talk about this stuff but like the Abu Ghraib stuff where they're like making them do lewd sexual things to each other as prisoners and that's what they were doing in the Stanford prison experiment I know it's if and you look at the pictures from both they're eerily similar eerie eerie they, and it's not you know you could say about Abu Ghraib oh whatever uh, authoritarian people joined the military to begin with where these guys were randomly assigned to be prisoners and guards you know? and they knew and, that it was a coin flip right uh, right so so it's scary and and it does fly in the face of, of virtue ethics and what Aristotle says and and naive naive human psychological beliefs like um, I think that there are good guys and bad guys and and what the the, the takedown here of social psychology is there is no there's no such thing as good guys and bad guys there are there are guys and gals put in good or bad situations now, so now now let me ask you that's the again that's sort of the extreme view that's the the extreme takeaway message from these experiments and it's something that I you know John Doris the philosopher here's one here's one little bit of sociology and philosophy philosophy that I can tell you. John Doris was somewhat revolutionary in using these experiments in social psychology to challenge. Right. Well, I, uh, let's, let's put up a link to, to Doris's stuff because... Uh, absolutely. Real, he has a book, really good book called Lack of Character where he marshals out all this empirical evidence that challenges the idea that uh, we have these stable character traits that will apply across a wide range of, of, of situations. Um, and we'll put, up, we'll put up links to that. Now, let me, before I give my view on this... What's your view on it? I, yeah. I, do you yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me. Oh, so, so this famously in social psychology is not. It, it, ha, it didn't center around necessarily the moral virtues and the whole character approach. But in the sixties, um, psychologist named Walter Michel really challenged uh, his beef was, was with personality psychologists. So it wasn't really necessarily about character, but it was about traits. But in particular, it was about personality traits. And what Michel, Walter Michel argued was that um, look, if you look at the data, any given situation captures the variance, right? In in, in the the. Uh, lingo of our, of our field, what captures the variance is the, the particular situation. Uh, it doesn't matter how you measure whether or not people uh, have extroversion or introversion or whether they're open to experience or whether they're neurotic or, or whatever. What really matters is where you drop these people. Like, what, what kind of situation you drop them into? So he had this famous critique of personality theory that has really dominated social psychology. And, I, and I'd say that before Doris and, the, and this whole situationist critique of, of virtue theory came around, this has been dogma in social psychology. Um, weirdly, even a stronger dogma than Michelle first argued, because what Michelle was arguing uh, was was essentially a version of, of interactionism, right? Which was, look, we have traits and we have situations and the way that we need to be, best be able to predict human behavior as scientists is to look at, at the interaction between our, our propensities, our psychological proclivities and the situations and that's how we're going to understand them. Neither one nor the other is going to be, is, is going to do the job. But this became sort of a, a, a general belief that the situation always wins. And... <clears throat> well, for, for some context, remember what personality theory is based upon. Personality theory is based upon self-reported things where just people bubbling in numbers and in, in you know various charts that's what the whole field of personality theory you know are you open to new experience or relatively closed you conscientious or lack conscientiousness are you neurotic or lower neuroticism are you extroverted or introverted it's all based on self-reporting data with people just bubbling in dots and squares and circles all right it's, it's not exactly terribly scientific right i don't find self-reported data where people just you know uh fill in some some bubbles to to report their experiences right i don't find that uh, terribly convincing terribly scientific i find 
John M. Doris's situation is critiqued much stronger, but here you got a couple of philosophers arguing against John M. Doris. And as somebody who came into social psychology sort of late in graduate school, I didn't get indoctrinated in the same way um, as most of my colleagues in social psychology. And I actually, I actually think that the pendulum swung, has swung way too far. I think that it's, it's an absurd. <laughs> if you want my real belief, I think it's, it's absurd to, uh, to make this extreme claim that, uh, that character or personality traits or whatever it is that the claim that there are no stable, uh, stable individual differences that will, that will predict and cause whether or not you're going to be a good guy or a bad guy. That doesn't mean I don't think there's some situations that, will over, that won't overwhelm the majority of people. No, no. John M. Doris is not arguing that there, there are no uh, personality traits, right? What he's arguing is that frequently the situation is going to be more important than any innate trait. So people are going to be affected when they're, say, in church, as opposed to being in a bar, as opposed to being at a sporting event, as opposed to being at a party where everybody's drinking. The situation is going to affect you. Sometimes the situation is going to affect you more than your innate traits. Sometimes your innate traits are going to be more dominant than the situation. And situationists don't argue that there are no innate traits. They simply argue that the situation is frequently overwhelming your innate traits or modifying your innate traits. Right, back to David Pizarro and company. But in general, there are nice people and there are douchebags. And nice people sometimes act like douchebags and douchebags sometimes act like nice people. But it's not it's not weird or wrong or irrational or contrary to the evidence to still say that we can cultivate good character traits, virtues in, in ourselves and our children. And, and I think that it's a crock to think to think that the research shows anything else. Well, why do you think it's a crock? Then why were why did right. all, where were all the guards in the Stanford prison experiment? Now some were worse than others. It's true, but there was nobody who just said, "Wait a minute, you know, we have to start." Uh, remember, I, these are actual like college students. They're just like us. What the what the hell are we doing? Uh, with all uh, yeah, these? no, I, I think that the mil- so I think that there are two things going on. One is that these situations were fairly powerful, mm-hmm. and that um, that that what I'm not, I'm what I'm clearly definitely not saying is that there isn't. There aren't situations that might overwhelm character traits. But two, there aren't – if you want to know whether or not character ha- or personality traits have any effect, you need more – you need better better measures on two ends. You need better measures of personality. So let me just talk about one type of situation that is going to have a profound effect on your personality. If you feel like you're running late, if you feel like you're running late, you're going to treat people as objects. You're going to be much more brusque. You're much more likely to be rude. You're much less likely to be empathic, to be nice. That's simply the situation of running late, right? Just that very simple, very common situation has a profound effect across all sorts of uh, different personalities. So, yeah, I, I even, you know, so-called nice people, all right, they're going to not be very nice when they're running and late. And better measures of the outcome in these studies. Like, we're all, we're all the prison guards equally sadistic. We're some more sadistic than others. And, and I think that there you might actually start to see variance. And in fact, one of the problems I think with personality, uh, with personality psychology early on was that the measures were rough. I think that the, the better measures that you get of individual differences, the more likely you are, you are to predict. So if I were to ask you, it's almost, it's almost as if some psychologists and even maybe some philosophers now are arguing that it's, that it's uh, blatantly wrong or even incoherent to think that there is such a thing as a shy person versus a uh, yeah, an extrovert, and that's not true. And, and it's weird because Zimbardo himself studies shyness, right? Uh, and sure, certainly you can put me in a situation where I'm going to feel shy, right? Yeah, obviously there are people who are shy. There are people who are more extroverted. Like I'm evenly balanced, according to the various self-reported tests I've taken between extroversion and introversion. So you can imagine how hard this is for me as a the strong silent type, just sitting here and orating. I mean, I'm a man who usually allows my actions to speak rather than my words. Words. 
words don't come easy for me, but the more confident I feel, the happier I feel, all right? The, the more that I sense that people like me, all right? The, the more extroverted I become. But the less secure I feel, uh, the more I feel like I'm struggling in life, the more things that I'm ashamed of, right? Then, then the more introverted I become. I hardly made any videos between, the, say, the summer or fall of, of 2012 and 2015 because I was struggling with over $50,000 in credit card debt. You know, I was struggling to earn a decent income. I was just struggling, struggling, struggling. And so I didn't feel strong enough to stand before a camera and, and talk. And of course. Yeah, like that, prison. But using those, like using that. Put you in prison, as, uh, right. yeah, you know, right. but not the but prison you, where you're giving lectures, but the prison where you're <laughs> trying to decide whether, you know, like, should I be that guy's bitch or this right, guy? Right, right. Do I really have to, like, find the biggest guy and kick his ass on the first day? <laughs> but, <so. laughs> should I join the neo-Nazis just so that I can, you know, have some I mean, sort big, of protection? Uh, believe me, I have thought many a time at, in, in California prisons, they're racially divided into white, Mexican, and black. <laughs> and I've thought many a time of this, so which one I would belong to. Well, that, I'm a Hispanic guy who looks it's not just uh, California prisons that are racially divided. That's the natural, normal way that humans organize themselves unless, you know, government legislates otherwise. It's not 100%, but prisons reflect a greater reality. And so this guy is saying he feels more comfortable with black people and with Mexicans than, than with white people. This is bogus virtue signaling, right? It, there's no way it's true. I'd love to know where he lives. I, I would bet you anything. He's going to claim now that he feels more comfortable with black people. I would uh, have 99.9% .9 certainty that this guy does not live in a black neighborhood. So this is bogus virtue signaling here from David Pizarro, the academic blog. White and gets along more with black people <laughs> bill burr the comic has a great line on that he says uh you know if i ever go to prison it's like my number one goal like beyond everything is just not getting raped and the only way that's gonna happen to me because he's like this red-headed white guy is if i join some white supremacist group so he just says he has a black friend and he says look no offense you're a good friend of mine but if we're ever in prison together i'm gonna call you an n-word <laughs> See, I guarantee you that I would be more comfortable with the black gorilla family than with the Mexican mafia or the white supremacists. Well, no, I'm sure you'd be more comfortable. The question no, the is, question is like, whether you'd be I could comfortable them to like, let on, me the, in. On, on your stomach with your head buried uh, in a pillow. Uh, I just want to know whether they would let me in. <laughs> I just want to know. It's true, you have that kind of rap. But, uh, so, so, uh, Maybe we should set that yeah, No, but the last thing I want to say about prison rape is I do think that's the one benefit to getting older, is that every day I get older, I become less desirable as someone who will be would be raped in prison because you get to a certain age, right? I'm sure when you're like 60 years old, they don't want to rape some 60 year old. I don't know. I don't... <laughs> it's it's honestly, it's, I, I swear, it's a consolation to me about getting older. I think that, that maybe you also get less attractive to your wife, so it's kind of a catch twenty two. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I don't know how, how attractive I ever was to her. So, you know. No, so anyway. What we the point was to get to this substantive part of the discussion, <laughs> and we're already like an hour in. Or an hour in. Uh, no, so. okay. So, so, so a couple things about what you just said, which is that, first of all, yeah, these these are pretty powerful situations that have to be manipulated a very specific way. It's like you say, if, the, if, if all of a sudden the guy doesn't have a white lab coat on, that makes a big difference. And so they had to do a lot of, you know, little subtle manipulations to get people to act in these horrible, horrific ways. And then, you know, the thing about the Stanford prison experiment is that there is this core of people that didn't 
I'm sorry, not Stanford Prison, but Milgram Experience. There, there, there is this core of people that didn't shock the people. They just walked out and said, I'm not doing it. And if you look at virtue and you know being a virtuous person, not as something that's common, but as something that's rare and as something that you have to work at, and that's right. something then that's almost consistent with those results. Yeah, exactly. Right. It, it's not like Aristotle's not arguing that, that you're born this way and that's it. Not at right? all. In fact, right. the opposite. He thinks that, right. that you have to, from a very young age, train yourself. And that if you don't do that, then you're not going to be a virtuous person, that you have no shot. And in fact, he even thinks you have no shot if you're not born into a special kind of situation, like a special kind of family with the, you know, you, where you have the opportunities for a special kind of education. And if you, if, if that doesn't happen, you're fucked. So, so the idea that, you know, virtue ethics as a whole is bankrupt because a majority of people, even if it's true that a majority of people will act in terrible ways if put in a, in a certain situation, right. that would still not threaten the idea that, that that there are such things as virtues. And in fact, can I read you? There's, there's this one really interesting passage at the end of my interview with Zimbardo. And I don't mean, I, I feel like I'm plugging your book incessantly throughout this episode. <laughs> Some, something like that, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's this section where he talks about the banality of heroism and how you train people to to be heroes. And he thinks it needs to start at a, at a very young age. And he says, this is what he says in the interview. Uh, last chapter of my book is not only about how how to resist the powers of a situation. It's also a celebration of heroism as the real antidote to evil. And that's the thing I'm doing now. I'm starting the Heroic Imagination Project. To be consistent, I say most evil is done by ordinary people put in certain situations. And it's the act that's really evil. Most people are really not. Most heroes, most heroic acts are done by are also done by ordinary people who aren't special in any way. They just happen to be put in a certain situation, an emergency of evil or immortality or corruption that gives them the opportunity to, to act on it. But... Then he says, while most heroes are ordinary people put in a situation only once in their lifetime that gives them the opportunity to act, uh, what they want to do is – what he wants to do, he says, is I want to democratize heroism and demystify it. That the heroic act that's extraordinary because it's rare now, but if we have more and more kids think I'm a hero in waiting and we have hero resources in schools and summer camps where kids learn situational savvy, these kinds of street smarts where they can learn social influence skills to form a network. Uh, so you want to say to them, you want to train these kids at a young age and to say I'm a hero in waiting and then I have to be prepared. I have to learn first aid skills. I have to learn social influence skills. I have to learn a set of things uh, and that when the time comes, I will act. That's actually the last line of the interview. Like that's just Aristotle right there. Right. That's you have to train these kids. You have to build habits. You have to drill. You drill virtue into into people and then they'll be virtuous. Then they'll be heroes. Then they'll be able to resist the power of all these situational I, forces. So, forces. So, is, so I agree, but is Mardo, is, so then is he being sort of just inconsistent, verging on incoherent with his views when you put them together? Because um, I mean when you no. read like his, his, his op-ed about Abu Ghraib, like he's... But they hadn't had that kind of heroes in waiting training. I mean, I guess that's how you would rescue it. You know, that's his point, right? It's really hard, and that right. most people aren't. You know, those people that what's, what was her name? Uh, Kristen, Lindy, Lindy, Christy, Lindy, something. Lindy, imagine what she. So, question from the chat: Where was I in 1992? I was so lost in chronic fatigue syndrome in 1992. I was basically bedridden. I was living in Newcastle, California. I would just kind of listen to classical music much of the day. Sometimes I had headaches that were too severe even to listen to classical music. I would be able to read for about 30 to 60 minutes a day, uh, maybe listen to talk radio for up to an hour a day. Uh, I was able to walk about a mile or two a day. Very grim day. So I was in Newcastle, about 45 minutes north of Sacramento, up Interstate 80, living with my parents, watching my life just fritter away. So in 1992, I was 26. I had had no hope that I'd ever recover from chronic fatigue syndrome. These were very dark days, but I had begun my conversion to Judaism. So that was kind of giving me strength. I was making friends and contacts within the Jewish community. 
So it was that transition into Judaism that, that gave me the, the strength and the enthusiasm to continue when otherwise my, my life seemed to have absolutely no hope. Little did I know that what I really need, all I really needed was grass-fed beef organs. So once I started taking my grass-fed beef organs from Ancestral Supplements, started on these about 18 months ago, that all my health returned, my vigor returned, my, my strength returned. I was able to you know, bike 10 miles on my stationary bike, not even feel tired. Since I've been in Australia, I've been walking 10 to 20 miles a day. Got, finally got my life back just 18 months ago at age 55 through these ancestral supplements, beef organ supplements. Somehow it, it gives me vitamin B12. That's what I'm guessing. Some some of the you know natural mis minerals and vitamins that my, my body was not otherwise absorbing from the, the cheese and the milk and the dairy products that I would take. So yeah, ancestral organs, uh, ancestral supplements, beef organ supplement capsules. Uh, took care of my chronic fatigue syndrome, which essentially held my life in a vice from about age until I was 21 until 55. And basically from 21 to 27, I was bedridden. And then from 27 until 55, I was about two thirds of normal health, where I was able to average you know, maybe up to three miles a day of walking or biking, that kind of moderate exercise without ill effect. Uh, now I can do 10, 20 miles without ill effect. We've done that, uh, but but the, but the it, that part can be consistent, and it's consistent with the idea that heroism and virtue across a wide range of situations is rare, and you got to start early. You know, just like you got to start early. You know, you, you, I can't take up golf now. You know, I can't <laughs> right. take up. Uh, right, right. There's, there's no, I can't take up a foreign true. language. You know, like, you know, it's true. I mean, character probably is like any other human. So I became so religious, like so fanatical. I would not even shake hands with a woman. I wouldn't listen to rock music. I wouldn't listen to pop music. I wouldn't look at pornography, right? I was in like no fat, wouldn't even shake hands with women. I, I felt so deprived though of human contact that I would hug trees. I was like a regular hugger of trees. I was so lost, so lonely. And I would, I would like send letters to people and, and I'd make audio cassette tapes and send them to people around the world. One thing I started doing in 1992 that turned my life around is I started answering singles ads and placing singles ads. And that brought, you know, a plethora of women into my life. And I started shaking hands with women. I started hugging women. I started kissing women. I started undressing women. I started fornicating with women, even, even in my most extreme forms of exhaustion, I was still able to have sex like three times a day. Uh, so that was all very sinful. I, I fell off my, my moral perch. I started gossiping again. And then I started watching sports again. All right. So from 1989 to 1993, I was you know, very righteous, you know, stop the masturbation, stop the pornography, stop the gossiping, stop looking at sports, stop listening to popular music, just you know, only classical music, religious music. I was just all about God. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't shake hands with women. I was just gung ho in my conversion to Judaism. I was just like seeking God, connecting to God, you know, praying to God, studying Torah. You know, I let my my beard grow grow long, and then I started meeting women, started fornicating with women, and that led to you know the occasional use of pornography. And then I started watching sports because the Dallas Cowboys came back. Dallas Cowboys won the Super Bowl in the 1993 season. So I started like following sports again, started listening to popular music again, you know, started banging again. 
then met a woman who got me on a, on a medication, uh, Nadel, which helped me move from being bedridden to at least two-thirds two of a, a normal life. I, I moved to Orlando, Florida to live with her. So that was in the summer of 1993. I started uh, resuming a normal life in December of 1993. So I was dating in, in Florida. I was very uh, socially you know, adventurous with the ladies. I remember walking at Flagler College in in near in Central Florida. I was just walking down the path of this blonde woman was walking towards me and I start chatting her up and get her number and we start, you know, dating. And uh, so I was, yeah, very social, moved to Los Angeles and uh, very social with the ladies in my first year you know, dated a lot of women, but, you know, still dealing with, you know, crushing chronic fatigue syndrome. So that uh, living out of my car for about eight months during my early years in Los Angeles. So a lot of, you know, extremely exciting times. I mean, what's more exciting than, you know, orgasms with, you know, brand new women that you're taking to bed sometimes while well, I was taking them to the back of my Datsun station wagon, uh, all sorts of, you know, places, you know, I was visiting in L.A., you know, very exciting times, but then a lot of crushing lows. Uh, one woman paid for me to fly to New York to stay with her. She was an heiress. I stayed with her for three weeks. Then she cut things off. She said her therapist and her friend said I was just using her, which was accurate. So, so a lot of women had the sense that I was just using them. So I was not a very nice person. I was very sexually compulsive. And my life was just swinging from highs to lows. I was exploring every form of Judaism, Orthodox Reform, Reconstructionist, Conservative Judaism, going to all these different singles events, like dating so many different women, uh, just a frantic life of just, you know, huge ups and downs, just trying to make my way in, in the big city, uh, eventually trying to you know, build a career as an actor and a model and going on auditions and getting signed by an agent, getting, you know, promises, oh, we're going to book you on a, on a modeling gig to Japan. I got got one at least one or two callbacks. I got you know roles in in movies that that never sold. With you know the payment was to come later, so at least I was back in the, the normal world to at least you know two thirds of a degree. So those are the years like 1994 to 1996, and then finally 1997. I began I began blogging. Individual difference, right? Like I cannot dunk a basketball no matter how hard I try, but you know I can make free throws. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, can, like, you can work on that. <laughs> I can work yeah, on that. Right. right. No, yeah. exactly right. There's going to be a range of heroism that you're capable of. But, you, but you know, from a, this is what we do with children, right? We, we, yeah. we try to train them. We try to uh, – but let me ask you a question where I think he is maybe being inconsistent or incoherent. So yeah. he was an expert witness for one of the Abu Ghraib guards and essentially saying, look, I ran this experiment and this is what happens. And, uh, and then he says, well – so they're not morally responsible for what they did. It's it's a rotten barrel. It's not. He's not. That Rumsfeld had this thing about it. it's a bunch of bad apples, and he says no, it's not a bad apple. It's a rotten barrel, right. um, which is the metaphor for the situation. And then, uh, but he, he he just tears into Condoleezza Rice and Rumsfeld and Cheney and Bush, and <laughs> and, and, and I ask him, well. Can't you kind of see them also as a victim no. of their situation? No, no, because no, they created the situation. I was like, well, I know they created that situation, right. but you know, like, what? Who the hell knows what it's like now, to this run is a, a country huge after a liberal paradox, right? I mean, it's just yeah. like, I mean, this could be a whole other episode, Tim. But, but I think that 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 it becomes obvious, right? That, that, that uh, everybody is a product of their environment, and uh, and you, you know, no, no criminal is morally responsible except for Cheney, <laughs> except, right, except for I, whatever politician you hate. Yeah, and I'm I'm definitely not defending Cheney, but I'm also. 
I'm also I'm, I'm, also love just, I'm sort of willing to give the same amount of moral blames and environmental defense uh, to, to, to most people. Cheney's a great example because he does seem sometimes like the embodiment of pure evil. There's a Darth Vader kind of <laughs> kind of air to him, but at the same time, it's right. Like, look, if you're not if you're gonna not blame people because they're a product of their environment, their situation, and maybe the fact that you know Cheney didn't have any hero in waiting training when he was a kid either. You know, God knows what Cheney's childhood was right. like. <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> that would be a funny skit. Genius as <laughs> a child. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, so... Um, we should wrap this up, know, right? Yeah. I wanted to make one last point about, about okay. experiments, which is that, uh, that there is there is a way in which it's it's valuable for social psychologists in, to create very, very controlled environments. Um, but one of the things, and usually you do this so that you can make some sort of causal claim. Um, you know, you can say, look, I just manipulated the lab code or the physical distance or whatever. One of, but one of the things that... Um, that is is missing from, for instance, the Milgram experiment is the possibility that that there is there would be another so- social influence in the other direction, and this actually is way more likely to happen in real life. Where um, if you're in a situation where something is really you know it's really going downhill, and you have just one other person, we know this from the Ash experiments, you just have one other person in the room right. who's willing to disagree, um, then all of a sudden you get a huge change. And interesting, yeah. Yeah, and you can say that this is also the power of the situation, but what that means, you know, it, it really does mean something that uh, maybe those people who are ha- have some proclivities toward feeling extra guilt or sympathy or empathy toward people who, who they're who they're victimizing would actually be way more likely to for that. It would be way more likely that, that character trait comes out if they have one other person, and and this makes sense, right? I mean, um, they realize it opens the door for them to disagree in a way that they didn't realize. So, so it, as much as I'm a huge fan of these studies, and I am a social psychologist myself, and usually we've always had to argue in favor of the power of the situation. This is a, a case now where we're ha- I, I think we're having to, to backtrack a little bit because I think that the, the, the strong conclusion just isn't the right one. And I think- the Partially Examined Life relies on your support. To find out how oh, to help in ways that are cheap or... I'll let you run here with uh, Robert Wright coming on and then Dr. Drew. What we're going to talk about here hooks up with a lot of philosophy. In fact, I taught the Stanley... <laughs> the scientific literacy of psychologists gets criticized quite often as well, so I feel your pain. So we could have a whole series on just things that philosophy students should know from science and from psychology in particular, but the ones that I knew about already, this Milgram one, it was easy enough to get a group of similar articles and focus our topic specifically on do people that we wouldn't suspect to become aggressive get that way in certain situations. And the one that you added to our syllabus here is John Doris's person situation of virtue ethics, which was great to have a more current article that was a little more explicitly philosophically inclined in that he talks about Aristotelian virtue ethics. And then this whole literature, apparently, of psychologists who take virtue ethics seriously and make psychological theories based on that. So I didn't know anything about that literature. So that was an interesting crossover. Yeah. So the question here is, to what extent is our behavior including the degree to which it's ethical behavior or not, dependent on our character and to what extent is it dependent on the situations we find ourselves in. A corollary to that question is just the interpretation of character as being the appropriate metric for how to talk about our personalities or who we are as people. And part of that might be just what do we mean when we talk about character at all? Yeah, so like the most general description of someone's character might just be whether they're a good or a bad person. That's sort of one of the sorts of judgments we're used to making all the time, but we can also get more specific on the Aristotelian route and talk about current. Well, I can give you an example of a situation that is going to be more powerful than someone's moral character. Most men, all right? Most men, you give them the opportunity to have sex with a young, attractive woman and give them, you know, any hope of being able to get away with it, they will be willing to throw off everything. They'll be willing to risk their marriage, right? They'll be willing to risk, you know, their reputation. They'll be willing to risk their job their, you know, elite status, all right, men will, generally speaking, throw away everything for the opportunity to have sex with a young, attractive woman, no matter their moral character, no matter if they're a rabbi, a priest, a minister, a plumber, a cricket player, a, an actor, right? So 
if you want to stay faithful to your wife, the most important thing you can do is not like build your moral character, but stay out of situations where you're going to be, you know, much more likely to transgress whichever, you know, moral boundaries that you want to hold by. If you want to stay faithful, then avoid situations where it will be easy to be unfaithful. And one, you know, commanding fact of this is that uh, virtually no man who has a job where he has frequent access to young, attractive women, such as a modeling agency or in Hollywood, is able to stay faithful. It just virtually never happens. Not only are they unable to stay faithful, they're almost always unable to preserve a marriage. So how many people in Hollywood, how many people in the modeling industry, uh, fashion industry, where the bloke has power and access to young, attractive women, virtually none of them are able to stay faithful. So the situation of you know having access to young attractive women and having you know a powerful situation so that they're attract powerful position so that they're attracted to you you know virtually no man no matter his moral character is able to stay chaste in those situations so one of many examples where the situation is much more powerful than you know, the individual's moral character edge and other sorts of virtues but part of that also would be when we say like something they're a good or a bad person we're saying that that is the description of their character. Their character lines up as good or bad. And that says something about who they are in their being or their essence. And that also has two implications. One is that's the way they are and that will endure over time. And it will also show up, manifest itself in particular ways in their behavior and the kinds of judgments they make and the way they interact with other people and interact in situations. So that you can predict something about how they will behave, how they will be based upon that understanding of their character. Right, and I think that those two points really are the important ones to highlight the stability of character, that, that is the stability of action, the dispositions that lead to action over time, and the underlying sort of, maybe essential isn't necessarily the right word, but it's caused by something deeper, and that is what's giving it its stability over time. Do you have some introductory words for us? Yeah, so I'm glad that we started with these two sort of staples of the social... Okay, so David Bizarro is an academic philosopher, and he wrote a paper here, the person-centered approach to moral judgment. And he says, there's a growing body of evidence that individuals are fundamentally motivated to evaluate others on a moral dimension. People quickly and easily attribute morally good or bad traits to others. They often do so early in interaction with limited information. So Pizarro and company argue that current act-based theories of moral psychology provide an incomplete account of moral judgment. So individuals are not asking so much, is this act right or wrong? Rather, they're asking themselves, is this person good or bad? Which is incredibly naive because most of your friends, all right, are, you're only going to see them in certain segments of life. So in, in these domains, are they good or bad, right? That's really the information that all the information you're going to get. So these academic philosophers argue that, A, individuals are motivated to assess the character of others, not just the rightness or wrongness of an act true, but uh, you're only going to be seeing the character of others in a particular domain, generally speaking. Some acts are perceived as more informative of an individual's moral character than others, therefore weigh heavily in moral judgments. Moral evaluations of acts and character can diverge, resulting in act-person dissociation. Judgments of moral character can infuse a host of other judgments that are central to moral evaluation, judgments of intention, agency, and blame. A number of recent empirical findings demonstrate apparent inconsistencies in moral judgment be better interpreted as reasonable for an individual motivated to assess the character of an agent rather than as simple errors of moral judgment. 
So it says evaluating others on the dimensions of trustworthiness and warmth, something that individuals do almost immediately. We seek information about the moral traits of others through the exchange of social gossip by looking for emotional signals, patterns of behavior that may indicate the presence of positive or negative underlying traits, views that a person possesses a stable set of traits regarding personal integrity, such as trustworthiness, fair treatment of others are of value because they suggest a person can be relied on to act cooperatively in the future. A lack of trustworthiness suggests that a person will defect in joint endeavors when it suits his interests. Unfair treatment suggests he will not divide resources equitably. Sorts of emotional reactions that seem to indicate care and concern, such as empathy, may be seen as valuable indicators that a person is genuinely motivated towards pro-social action and would feel constrained against harming others. So there is support that these empathic traits serve as reliable indicators of future behavior. The deficits in empathy are a hallmark of antisocial tendencies and that uh, we should avoid such individuals. Right. So corporate executive who spends money on frivolous perks. Right. This is widely understood as, you know, indicating a really bad person. I would be highly skeptical about the predictive or explanatory power of that. There are acts that don't cause any harm, but are used as diagnostics, such as if someone says the N-word, you know, even if they just say it under their breath, no one else sees it or hears it. Supposedly, this indicates a very bad person. I don't buy that. Uh, an individual possesses poor moral judgment if he actively takes pleasure in the suffering of others. That, that shows a really bad person. Right. Human beings, according to this person-centered account of moral judgment, human beings are intuitive virtue theorists who view acts as signals of underlying moral traits such as integrity and empathy. Relatively harmless actions can be seen as high in informational value regarding character if uh, they're seen to be doing anything racist, according to these academic philosophers. All right, let's, uh, let's hear the academic philosophers talking. It's like tradition. Milgram and Zimbardo, because although there's a whole bunch of work, obviously, since then in social psychology, I mean, social psychology in, in some ways is defined as really how the situation shapes social behavior. There's almost sort of a built-in assumption, probably based on years of research in most social psychology work, that really we're pulled by the forces of the situation more than by anything like a stable character trait or disposition or a personality. And I think that these two papers make the point clearly in a way that the rest of social psychology on this topic is almost a footnote to these two papers because they were so strong and so influential. And I, I'm sure Okay, let's uh, let's listen to Laura Ingram here. He is just the rhetoric that we've used, the thoughts and prayers that you just referred to. It has done nothing to stop the epidemic of gun violence. Oh, liberal high school administrators. Let's not forget about them. They felt threatened by public displays of religion for decades now. Remember Joe Kennedy, a beloved football coach at Bremerton High School in Washington State? He lost his job for the high crime of praying after games. It was never like we were forced to pray with him. He never said, hey, guys, like, let's go pray or anything like that. Um, we all just kind of took it upon ourselves. But the Bremerton School District says it warned Kennedy several times that as an employee, he could not pray on the field after games at all. Well, this poor coach had to take his case all the way to the Supreme Court, which thankfully ruled against the school and upheld his free exercise rights. But then last night in Cincinnati, when Buffalo safety DeMar Hamlin fell limp to the ground after a hard tackle, not only was no one complaining about public prayer, the millions watching, including yours truly, we were comforted by seeing it. 
grown men, visibly shaken, terrified of what they saw, were moved to drop to their knees, not in protest, but in humility and devotion to the Almighty. It was fervent prayer for healing for their brother, who lay motionless as his mother watched in the stands. No one was focused on rivalries, the playoffs, fame, fortune, issues like race or politics. None of that mattered. On display for the world to see was the best of America, our humanity, our compassion, our caring, our shared faith in a greater power, one that can help us see goodness, even amidst terrible suffering. Fans from both the Bills and the Bengals even ran to pray outside the hospital where Hamlin was rushed in for treatment. It was just a big shock. Like, it was just a big silence. Like, no one knew what to do. And it's just heartbreaking to, to even hear what happened. The whole world loves him. You know, everybody loves him. It's not just one fan base. It's not just one person. It's, we're all here. We're all praying for him. I'm a Bengals fan, so I was really praying really hard that everything was okay, and I still am. I feel like the world just stopped at that moment. This is the best of America, and it's also in part why we love sports. All sports teams, when they're run well, become brotherhoods or sisterhoods. They're reservoirs of love and support, where young people learn and they grow, where they confront disappointment and enjoy victory. And where, on rare occasion, they're forced to realize that every breath of our lives is a gift, that tomorrow is promised to none of us. Of course, it's easy, though, to lose sight of your priorities. We all can do that with money and fame. But in interviews, DeMar Hamlin seemed wise beyond his years. I'm big on my family unit. Um, like, my mom, my dad, my little brother, like, that's pretty much my whole world um, outside of any other thing going on, my life revolves around them. Like, I, I don't really do too much without my mom and dad's opinion. Um, whether I take it or whether I don't, you know, but I sometimes I just want to hear it, you know. Um, it's just how I was raised, and I, that's just something I'm, I'm big on. How refreshing and how uplifting that last night and today, Americans from coast to coast contributed to DeMar Hamlin's charity that provides toys year-round to needy children. Now, here on The Angle, we spend a lot of time pointing out where our politicians and sometimes our schools go off the rails. We bemoan spectacles on Capitol Hill and the fact that kids are taught that America... I'm currently live over Rumble, live over Odyssey, and question on Odyssey, which direction do I think uh, Bitcoin is going? I believe Bitcoin's going down, 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 down. I am highly skeptical of the whole uh, cyber currencies thing and uh, being so uh, pretty explicitly for what the last uh, 18 months right I want to play a little ball here from david Pesson. we'll talk about the ethics of these experiments but I, I wanted to say a little quick story about the milgram studies milgram was at yale and i happened to be a grad student in the psych department at yale and one day we were just exploring around the dark basement area of a you know as, as anybody who's familiar with these academic departments knows there's always some weird dark storage area in the basement and we were just digging around wait heard that story already let's uh... if we didn't believe that prayer didn't work we wouldn't ask this of you god um, i believe in prayer we believe in prayer we lift up damar hamlin's name in your name amen 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 now how often have you seen that happen at an anchor desk on secular television
Well, tonight, even with all the political chaos in D.C., we're going to get to that shortly, we see the innate goodness in America shining through. We're in okay, let me the file cabinets. And yeah, danger, severe shock. And the last, the highest one is just triple X. And it's left <laughs> ambiguous on how you interpret that. So they're giving them contradictory cues. This is decades before Vin Diesel. <laughs> That's right. Convulsions and all sorts of symptoms induced by the... Yeah, some students who are psych majors, senior psych majors, to predict how many people would go all the way. And some of his... In air... Sparks will jump at 50,000 volts per inch, basically, in dry air. We want to accept that. Well, there are clear dissimilarities between this short time frame and particular situation in an educational institution and stuff. I think we should get the Stanford Prison Experiment out since we've laid out the facts. The first one laid out the facts. The second one so we can kind of talk about ethical implications of both of these together because that was something that ran over multiple days. So it was taking a bunch of screened students. So Milgram didn't do any screening for his people. It was just you know, people from the community uh, within a certain age range. But in this Stanford Prison Experiment, it was ask all these college students if they had history of mental illness or try to detect sadistic tendencies, give them these personality tests and try to get the most stable, normal, you know, above average intelligence, but emotionally mature enough. The guards got no training. <laughs> In 1972, so in life, which we expected to produce qualitatively similar psychological reactions in our subjects, feelings of power and powerlessness, of control and oppression, of satisfaction and frustration, of arbitrary rule and resistance to authority, of status and anonymity, of machismo and emasculation. So instead of explaining deplorable prison conditions in terms of character types of prisoners and guards, you explain it in terms of the way prisons are structured to put people in certain kinds of roles and they will fulfill those roles. The reason that maybe people don't rehabilitate is because we put them in these situations where we're not giving them much of a chance to rehabilitate. As many times as I've taught and I've read about the Zimbardo experiment. Okay, Ricardo is back. Ricardo has a gift. And Ricardo has a gift that I don't have. Like, Ricardo has level of emotional honesty that uh, is just so many leagues beyond mine. He has a way for kind of detecting, you know, fault lines in society, all sorts of things that I'm completely blind to. You know, Ricardo comes through. Ricardo says, guys have broken their necks playing football. Guys have shattered their knees. Guys have been knocked limp. Guys have been taken off the field on a stretcher. What's different this time? Well, I have never seen CPR performed on a player in an NFL contest or the National Basketball Association contest or a Major League Baseball contest. I have never seen CPR performed, and I don't believe CPR has been performed on a player at any of the three major American sports for the past 45 years. But uh, Ricardo says that what's different this time is anxiety about a certain public health measure, which it would probably be best for my standing on social media if I didn't explicitly outline the public health measure that is causing tremendous anxiety about uh, people dying suddenly, dropping suddenly. So I think we all know the public health measure to which I refer. It is unspoken, says Ricardo, but it hangs in the air. And why are we suddenly seeing guys needing CPR during a game? Can't help but think that something is different. And I have a good friend who followed certain public health measures against influenza. And when he undertook a second helping of a particular public health measure, his heart swelled up. He received uh, myocarditis. It scared him to death. Now, as I understand it, uh, myocarditis is usually a temporary thing, but he never wanted any more helpings of this particular public health measure. Now, I understand that the public, the public health experts say this is temporary, that uh, overall this particular public health 
measure conveys, you know, far more benefits than the temporary inconvenience of having a swollen heart. So, yeah, Ricardo is our, our favorite, favorite, uh, favorite uh, marginalized minority commentator on the show. All right, back to David Pizarro and the academic philosophy. In both of these papers, it's still really odd and distressing to read the descriptions of the behavior of the people in the studies. And so he's talking about prisoners. He says the most dramatic evidence of the impact of the situation upon the participants was seen. I think Zimbardo is just completely unethical. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. I mean, because of these two studies, we have very strict measures about what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. I think, I think that's good. Some people have said, you know, we learned the most from those and now we can't even do them. But uh... <laughs> well, what about, I mean, I watched the same video that Wes referred to and I was talking to my wife about these experiments and she's a physician and has done some work in psychology as well. And you know, her first thought is, well, that's just completely unethical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was just trying to get my head around it, especially for the Milgram one. And then I watched the BBC thing and this was like made, I don't know, just a couple years ago or something, right? 2009. These situations, they strike me as grossly unethical, but reality TV can get away with a lot. It's much stricter guidelines for what we can do actually in a psychology lab. Yeah, I guess Survivor is a kind of version of this psychological experiment, right? Right. Without the ethical guidelines, there's just money at the end. <laughs> right. But yeah, because of Milgram, the minute somebody says, I don't want to be in this experiment anymore, we have to let them go. Like the first time they say it, or else you're, it's a gross violation of, of the human subjects protocol. I mean, I don't think Milgram is any more unethical than, like, say, high school. <laughs> <laughs> right. At least for me. And uh, Ricardo absolutely bringing it in the chat. He says that it's thing is going on right now where everyone is saying now is not the time to talk about that thing. Everyone knows what everyone is worried about, but hey, we can't talk about what everyone's worried about because come on, there's there's no you know peer-reviewed academic scientific uh, public health consensus that there's any connection between you know people dying suddenly and certain public health measures, and I don't believe there is a connection. So I am all on board with uh, public health measures, but I also you know, live in reality. I welcome a more robust dialogue than is currently allowed on many forms of social media. So I, in this case, I side with the experts. In some cases, I side with the dissidents, but I you know, may be totally wrong. I would prefer a more robust discussion. I wish there wasn't such, you know, extreme censorship about talking about certain things that people really want to talk about. Why, you know, why is suddenly all these, you know, younger people dying suddenly? Now, I don't know if there is a statistically you know, valid sample that we we do have uh, more you know, young people dying suddenly, and I I don't believe it's connected to public health measures. I wish we could discuss these things more openly. Look forward. Do you believe that vaccine anxiety is part of why this has captured the public imagination? Yes, I do. I do. I believe that uh, you are 100% accurate that it is anxiety about various mandated and if not mandated, strongly, strongly encouraged public health measures that, you know, fueling anxiety about why seemingly so many people are dying suddenly and once again, I don't believe there's any connection to these various public health measures and seemingly all these young people dropping suddenly. But I would welcome a robust discussion about this. I would welcome the evidence about this. It would be so nice if we could talk about this explicitly, what tens of millions of people are thinking and feeling right now. Wouldn't it be great if we could have an open discussion about the fear and anxiety about you know all these different uh, public health uh, measures 
that uh, are provoking fear and anxiety and it's kind of a doggone shame that we can't talk about it publicly. <laughs> it's, just, it's just systematically. ISIL is horrific. That's a, that's a crime against. Anyway. I wondered a lot about, in the Zimbardo one, about the kinds of measures that they're making, the kinds of assessment we're making about people's normalcy and the kinds of characters they have. Because and uh, Ricardo makes another great point here. These guys are half praying for the injured prayer and half praying for themselves. Well, I don't know about you, but I always feel much more empathy if I can kind of imagine myself in the other person's situation. So, yeah, if someone drops suddenly from something that I fear could hurt me, yeah, I'm going to pray much more fervently. I'm going to be much more emotionally engaged. I'm going to be much more anxious, right? So I prefer to see movies about people that I can relate to. The more I have in common with other people, all right, the more closely I, you know, feel for them, the more empathy I have, the better I get along with them. I prefer to read books about people like me. I prefer to have conversations with people like me. I tend to have much more empathy for people like me. The more I have in common with people, the more likely I am to feel a bond with them. The less I have in common with people, the more difficult it is for me to have significant amounts of empathy for them, the more difficult it is for me to relate to them. So I don't see where we should celebrate diversity when diversity means that we have less and less in common with each other. I think the more we have in common with each other, the better we'll get along, the more empathy we'll show, the more social cohesion and social trust we'll have. Yeah, open discussion is important. Cole Beasley signed back with the Buffalo Bills. So did uh, Cole Beasley also sign up for these various widely mandated public health measures. So effectively, Cole Beasley ended his National Football League career because he didn't want to take the vaccine. So has he changed his mind on the, the vaccine? Luke loves the blessed Saint Dr. Fauci. Remember, trust the science. Luke has shares in Pfizer. Boys, trust the science. Nothing to see here. Well, I, I do think that Anthony Fauci speaks with a scientific consensus about 95% of the time. I think uh, Fauci did a reasonably good job. I, I certainly don't see him as demonic or as a, a bad guy. I see him you know, as a flawed public servant who did more good than harm. And anyone else in his position would have pretty much said and done the things that he did. Right? You have to be a certain kind of canny political player to secure the position and stay in the position that uh, Anthony Fauci was in. So I don't think the individual is terribly important. I think the structure, the situation determines how people behave you know, much more than the individual's personality or moral character. All right, back to these academic philosophers. One of the forces of the conclusion has to do with the ability to assess quote-unquote normal people and their characters at the beginning. I guess on the one hand, see what big an effect a situation has on them and sort of contradict the notion of character. And I wondered about the kinds of measures that were made in the Zimbardo of ways of actually getting to what somebody's, you know, sort of character is like, and then whether that was sort of controlled for in any way. Yeah, I'm not sure you could really get to what someone's character is like, or you can know is what someone's character is like in a particular domain. So what they're like when they're driving, or what, what they're like with their family, or what they're like with their friends, or what they're like at church, or what they're like, you know, at work. Right. How someone behaves at work is not necessarily how they behave in church. 
someone who's faithful to his spouse is not necessarily faithful in how he does does business. Uh, the chat says, wow, you know, the lefties are discovering God. Yeah, it was kind of amazing to see secular media, like, praying to God, reaching out to God, reaching out to the transcendent. I, I don't recall anything like this. Back to the academics. Right. So in the Zimbardo study, they do give people a series of measures that I guess at the time were standard measures of personality. One of them is the Comrie scale, where it's measuring trustworthy. And so remember, personality psychology, personality science, it's just based on people's self-reported you know, findings and bubbling in things on, on paper, right? Not a lot of uh, science in personality science. And uh, we're also live on Rumble right now. We've got an active active, active chat going on in Rumble. Least lefties have kind of found God. And uh, chat claims Dr. Fauci is not a good person. His AIDS protocol deformed and killed people in Africa. So I don't know anything about that, but I I welcome open discussion, free discussion, free inquiry. We should have freedom of speech on social media as as well as in American society, Australian society. It's a, it's a shame that we can't have more open discussions about the things that are most on people's mind right now. There's a lot of anxiety right now, and it manifests itself in you know otherwise unexplainable ways, such as how what happened to this Buffalo Bills player has just absolutely transfixed the uh, the nation. And uh, back to the, the YouTube chat, we've got. Uh, Jim Bowden says, Luke, science is not a democracy. It's either 100% true or not. No, sometimes science can be 80% true, true in this situation, not true in that situation. Luke, when does science become a democratic institution? Science should not be a democratic institution. Science is a flawed, socially constructed human institution that responds to incentives. Most funding for science comes from a tiny number of very big institutions such as the federal government. And so it's a socially constructed institution. You have to get along with your peers. You often can't rock the boat. Uh, So science is a flawed human institution like religion, another flawed human institution. Uh, Ricardo says that Anderson Cooper is ready to swear off certain sins if God saves him from a from a heart, heart attack. <laughs> There's no such thing as a conflict of interest. Government enforced subscription-based models of medicine are the healthiest. Okay. Now we'll keep an eye on the chat here and play academic philosophers. Meanwhile, Happiness, orderliness, conformity, activity, stability, extroversion, masculinity. And a lot is made of there being no difference. So there's a lot talked about. There's no difference between this and the population scores. These people weren't any different from the normal population. And the prisoners and guards weren't any different from each other. I'm not familiar with this particular personality scale, but it is sort of in that same family of personality scales that we would use nowadays, something like extroversion and trustworthiness. These are self-report scales about your own personality traits. It's a small subject. It's not a lot of people. So that when he compares prisoners and guards and says there's no significant difference between the two, there's never enough power, statistical power, to make any conclusions about that, right? So it is currently 6.23 p.m. in Tenham Sands, Queensland, Australia. I'm in Whoop Whoop, Outback Australia here. And uh, it's going to get dark in about 20 minutes. And at 4 a.m., the birds will start singing. So I'm typically getting up about 4 a.m. Right now, 
you've got the crows singing in the background, but they really get going after sunset for the first first hour after sunset. They become really loud, and then the birds start singing about 4 a.m. Uh, good times here in uh, Tenham Sands for just a few more days, then head back to Sydney till the end of January when I return to the United States. So it's currently 6.24 p.m., Tenham Sands, whoop, whoop. Australia, meaning Outback Australia, it is currently January 24, 2023, here down under. This is, he couldn't find something if there really was. <laughs> I mean, the, the numbers are written out to the hundredths place. <laughs> yeah. And I sort of write it the way you did, which is, is that average on that number, you know, good to plus or minus 10, plus or minus 20? You know, in which case, there's no difference between any of them. There's no resolution at all. Every once in a while, you know, they get a significant finding here. But one of the criticisms that has been raised about this Zimbardo study is that even though people were randomly assigned to prisoner and guard, these were all people who were responding to an ad about being in an, in an experiment about prison. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. people have said, well, you didn't have the right measure, but the sorts of people who... <laughs> exactly. And he uses the phrase prison life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's something that you would want to avoid, right? <laughs> and we're all like 18 to 20 year old white males probably from... Yeah. With the exception of one oriental, as it says. <laughs> So I have a feeling that if you wanted to show people being mean to each other within a day or two, you would kind of pick these people. So one thing that makes you want to do experiments like this, even if you constructed them better, is you want to try to have controls to understand people's reactions to situations and understand those effects and construct a good experiment. You know, the other way to do it is sort of through observational techniques in which you control for those things post hoc. And has anybody sort of tried to call that out out of epidemiological data contrasting it directly with the Zimbardo experiment that you know of? I don't know whether anybody's done anything like this. It's hard because Zimbardo's main point is that this can happen to anybody. And so he's almost purposefully trying to ignore individual differences, or else I think he would have done a bit of a different job in looking at measures of individual difference. I would have gotten these people screened by an actual psychiatrist, probably, to try to get some better metrics. It seems like these were all just self-report scales. But I don't know if anybody's looked at a large scale. At, I mean, I'm sure in criminology, people have looked at individual differences that might predict deviant behavior. And we certainly know a lot about the precursors to antisocial personalities and psychopathy. But it's sort of a different point Zimbardo was trying to make. He wants, he really wants to say anybody can do this. So I think you would need to really sample from the population and put them in a kind of situation like this. And nobody's really done that since this. But I'm also thinking, I mean, there's other circumstances that are very prison-like, right? Be so it's 90 degrees here. I mean, it's so stinking hot, all right? Absolutely stinking hot here in Wukwa, all right? It's the middle of summer here. You know, I've been, been blessed overall, but uh, I've been putting in four or five hours a day doing uh, manual labor in the morning and then come home, have lunch, usually, you know, a smoothie, uh, take a bit of a nap because I didn't bring my CPAP with me to Queensland. My CPAP's back in Sydney, so I'm not getting the same quality of sleep that I had in Sydney and Los Angeles. And then I you know, start uh, reading academic papers or, or books or peruse uh, podcasts and uh, if I feel so moved I do a show like this and then I was planning to hit the beach right the beach is only a mile away all right and it is like the water in the beach here is about 70 75 degrees it's like uh, bath water temperature it's just absolutely delicious but I'm having such a good time doing this live stream that I've completely you know, missed my chance to hit the beach because it's going to be it's going to be dark in a few minutes but yeah I, I really enjoy doing these live streams because it's an opportunity to think socially right i say out loud you know what i'm thinking and then you challenge me or you supplement my thinking or you undercut my thinking and so uh there are all sorts of perspectives and parts of reality that i would otherwise be blind to like just like 
you know, I'm like this this friend of mine who at 20, a 20 year old woman, a, a virgin, went to a job interview for for a massage therapist position. Just uh, she was all down with it, just kind of confused why this massage therapy job would want her to do the job without a shirt on. And so, like people were telling her, this is a prostitution job. But she ignored it, and not until family intervened and said, "You cannot do this. This is a prostitution job." That she finally got it. So. You know, my, my friend is incredibly naive in all sorts of areas, and I'm incredibly blind in all sorts of areas. But I think much more clearly and effectively when I think out loud and I think with you and I read what you have to say, you know, get your, get your challenges back. Yeah, there are some of my mates here say there are only two states that I want to be in, uh, drunk and Queensland. Huh. I don't drink, but uh, Queensland's pretty good, mate. Then boarding schools or high school, and they may not have the same kinds of confinement, but you still have this effective social situation and interaction that people have on each other. Yeah, you know, what has come close to that are the sort of famous intergroup experiments in one sort of famous paper. on the, It's called the Robber's Cave Experiment. They got boys who were at camp and assigned them to be in different groups and had them compete with each other and sort of measured the intergroup aggression. Lord of the Flies. It was very much Lord of the Flies. And then they actually went out of their way to try to undo some of that intergroup hostility by giving them common goals to achieve. And they showed that the intergroup aggressive behavior went down when they had a common. So in one case, they had their bus got a flat tire and they all had to work together to fix it. Right. So you have had stuff like that. You know, what's another thing that brings diverse people who otherwise have nothing in common together. You know, it brings people who are frequently at odds together religion, in particular in America, Christianity, right? Having football players pray together, right? When you pray, when you speak, when you think, you need a particular language, right? It helps if you have the Lord's Prayer, if you have particular Christian prayers in common, right? Christianity brings all sorts of people together who would otherwise be very likely to be at each other's throats. And so with the decline in Christianity, that we've got the, the rise of racial tension. I, I think it's entirely possible that the strength of Christianity in the United States took some of the edge off the, the racial tension. So people with, with nothing in common, you give them a common purpose, yeah, you give them a common religion, a common religious vocabulary, uh, common religious teachings, right? That brings people together, right? Yeah, you can give them a task and that brings people together like these academic philosophers are talking about. You know, what's even more effective than a task, something that's ongoing, a concrete social community, a flesh and blood community around a transcendent value system, perspective on life, a common vocabulary for prayer, like a church, a religion that helps to bring people who otherwise may not have a whole heck of a lot in common, kind of gets them singing from the same hymn book so to speak. It's an interesting question, though. To what extent we've missed out on learning about some of this behavior because we can't experimentally do it anymore. <laughs> I'm not saying we ought to, but I think we're really constrained by selection so, bias uh, when we're looking in the real world, like the kinds of people who are sent to boarding schools or military schools or whatever. I mean, there's a little bit of but aren't there classic examples among early child psychologists where they're raising their children according to some kind of deviant prescription to try to see how it affects them? Or maybe that's just a kind of nightmare situation that you would invent for a movie. Yeah, I don't know about that. Although developmental psychologists are weird. There are people who have filmed every single hour of their children's lives in an attempt to figure out questions like how they acquire language. There's one researcher who, who literally had video going throughout the entire so the rumble chat says australia is woke well the anglo-saxon world is probably more woke than any other part part of the world so meaning canada united states england australia 
but uh, regular Australians are not particularly woke. Now, the culture in Australia is different. So the veneration that Americans put on freedom and different concepts of freedom, Australians put on fairness. So Australia is more regulated. It has more government intervention. Australians have much more faith in the government than Americans do uh, because Australia is much more dedicated to creating a fair society. Americans tend to be much more dedicated towards creating a free society. All right, $5 super chat for Media Hits wants me to play uh, an excerpt here. I've, I've, I've been watching a shit ton of what I like to call the Entenmann's Donut Goatee Seagal era films. <laughs> yeah, we watched from anything, last night. Anything post-2000. Dude, let me suck off some coffee. Probably 2011 or 12. Okay. So the last four years of Seagal movies. And he's never been, like, uh, particularly an active guy. But, you know, like... Uh, under siege era, he's in good shape. He's, he's in, like, No, he's in Above the Law. First of all, p what people don't realize about Seagal is that when Above the Law came out, he was already, like, 34 years old. Right. Mm -hmm. He wasn't a young guy. So his first movie, he was right. already, you know, like, getting on. And yeah. you can see his hairline's fucked up in that movie. You yeah, know, it's yeah, all, yeah. like, thin, you know, in the mm -hmm. front. Mm -hmm. And then in Hard to Kill, his hairline's fixed. And, you know, uh, he's a little bit fatter. And he just got progressively fatter through throughout his entire career. Yeah, that was back talking. in the day when you didn't have to be cut. Yeah. Well, now he's 65 <laughs> years old. And in, in the last, he's in his 60s. His body he's still, sucks. He's still making movies where he's like, we need to send our best special forces guy. <laughs> and then he spends half the movie in a chair. Yeah. He like, refuses to get up. So we watched last night uh, Sniper Special Ops. And they, there's no colon. It's Sniper Special Ops. <laughs> and that's because, the, wanted, that's because the Tom Berenger Sniper series are not related to Sniper Special Ops. Uh -huh. And he does maybe five seconds of sniping in the movie. <laughs> it's right in the beginning. He refuses to take his sunglasses off while looking through the sniper rifle so he's wearing these dumb fucking like snowboarding sunglasses while like looking down this rifle and then when they show the enemies in the reticle they're like five feet away they're, they're taking up the entire scope so he's probably yeah like 10 5 feet away from these guys so awesome. and, and missing they let him miss for you say he refuses to take it off you're saying you think steven seagal the actor yeah is like no absolutely not i'm not getting out of this chair i'm not taking off yes 100 i guarantee you that's what it is <laughs> yeah because the thing about all these movies is, is they're all produced by uh steamroller productions which he owns. What, that's like a Chinese. Oh, no, God. No, Steven Seagal's that? company. He owns it with some uh, like Indonesian guy or something. It's yeah, like Steam when you work at a restaurant, voltage. you have to wait on the owner of the restaurant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, all these people. Then he brings all these fucking old fucks out of retirement. So it's like, you know, like Rob Van Winkle, like dying wrestlers. Rob, yeah, it's all like uh, yeah. retired WWE really? yeah, yeah, yeah. guys. Oh, so, I gotta check this out. Was, <laughs> in Sniper Special Dam. Ops, you know, it's oh, like... Oh, RVD? RVD's in it. Yeah. In Sniper Special Ops, he's like... He's the lingo guy. Overwatch. Two is a Charlie. Anything in my area? I love it. He's yeah. He's playing like uh, you know they're part of like this like special ops team, and they're all like in the the minimum age is fifty one years old, <laughs> <laughs> and they're in like Afghanistan somewhere. Of course. And then they show their commander, who's a major, and because it he's wouldn't make colonel. sense. Yeah, he's a colonel. And it wouldn't make sense if he was like, you know, Young. their age. So they have like an 87 year old man. <laughs> In army clothes, yeah, really? This fucking decrepit old man oh, in army awesome. uniform, and he's like, "Well, I don't know if we can get up that mountain by sunrise." 
<laughs> I had a divining rods tells me there's gold in them hills, you know, and it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, I mean, Seagal is like, he literally puts such minimum effort into the action. Like the way he fires the gun is like, I yeah. can't even describe it. Uh, yeah, like he just sort of lays the podcast. Like, yeah. yeah. He's just like limp wristedly <laughs> fire the gun, like yeah. not even looking where he's shooting. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's oh, a, there's so one good. scene in Sniper Special Ops where he's working some radio and he's just sort of lazily pointing a gun at the window next to him in case anyone comes because it's understood that he never really has to aim the gun. <laughs> oh, yeah, his partner also gets shot and he needs to drag him away. It's clear that he's, like, connected to, like, some sort of wire. Yeah. And, like, you see and him pulling Steve, the guy, Steve's but he's, just like, touching, literally... He's just, he's just touching his, his shoulder. Yeah. And then the fucking body moves across yeah. the ground <laughs> as to all his <laughs> <laughs> we were, oh, I'm so really jealous! I I, I literally that. almost peed my pants. Yeah, oh, I, I haven't anything anything post 2012 is like this. Sergeant Chandler. Yes, ma'am. Are you really as good as they all say you are? Every once in a while. And he's got one of those. Oh, and he talks like a black person now. Yeah. Well, that started with Glimmer Man, and it's progressed where now he talks like a slave. Thanks for letting me behind. Don't mention it, brother. He's like a he's a jazz he's a, man now. Uh, yeah. Oh hell, you know these motherfuckers don't, don't have patience. He's Prop me. Joe. He talks oh, like God. Prop <laughs> Joe. Yeah. I got a proposition. <laughs> What's wrong with you, man? You're slipping. But you can't check your six. Robert, just like old times, huh? Me saving your life and you hook a girl, flying up into the wind. Well, I, I, I already told these motherfuckers if they want any of my business, they're gonna have to come around here, and cut me off, cut me off a little something that. Uh, you know, so maybe we'll, good. we'll maybe do a little mission here in a minute. He should play like, a black no, God forbid, God forbid, that's uh, Clangus TV on Steven Seagal. All right, let's get something highbrow. He is a Harvard professor talking Joyce Benenson. Professor of Evolutionary Theory. How do women compete for partners? Just the same with um, finding a mate or finding any food. If you can not engage in a contest, it's much better. It's much safer. So females will be more likely to do that. That's scramble competition. That Yeah. I mean, it's my example. It's called scramble competition, but it's my example of solitary competition which is still competition it's much harder to notice because it's not purposefully conspicuous it's purposefully not conspicuous and then you show up for the prom and you look better than everyone yes is this the same dynamic that is causing girls to outperform in school that in academia you are an individual you are competing with the group but it's not directly it's it's you versus this sort of just miscellaneous blob of the grade distribution yeah i mean my sense with academia is number one girls like it more and they always have you know and they've always outperformed yeah because girls are more aware of social cues they are much more willing to color within the lines right boys are more rambunctious they're much more likely to challenge authority so if you talk to university professors, they'll tell you they're smarter students are, are men, but the students who color the most carefully between the lines and therefore get the best grades are the women. 
it's just they weren't allowed in a lot of educational institutions. So that's my I that's think, my belief as well. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But I think it's it's absolutely true that number one they like it more, but there's this sense that, oh my gosh, it's luck that I did so well in the exam and really I don't want to talk about it, as opposed to, ha ha, I got a better mark than you, which is the male way. And I've heard that so many times. And uh, chat says, I don't care about Steven Seagal. Yeah, but it's a metaphor, bro. It's a metaphor for, for how the news media treats Joe Biden. Right? Just <laughs> take that commentary, just, just apply it to, to Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden says and does and, and is so many ridiculous things, but he's essentially helped along by the news media, just like Steven Seagal's career is you know, subsidized by you know, whatever forces want to keep churning out these ridiculous Steven Seagal movies. So you don't care about Steven Seagal, just remove Steven Seagal, think Joe Biden, or think you know the media's favorite topics. Think woke culture. What woke means is that certain groups are considered sacred and therefore immune from criticism. Women, gays, transgender, blacks, Jews, right? You have all these sacred, supposedly marginalized communities. Woke, the woke approach is that you can't criticize these groups. They're absolutely sacred. Now, we all hold things sacred. The Christian holds you know, Christ sacred. The Orthodox Jew holds Torah sacred. All right, the secular humanist, you know, holds the secular humanist approach sacred. The woke hold you know, marginalized communities are absolutely sacred. And so they, they treat them with the same kid gloves that uh, Steven Seagal that manages to treat his pathetic you know, acting. But you gotta gotta think about the, the metaphorical wisdom in that uh, Come Town episode on Steven Seagal. You know, where a, a, a boy or, you know, a young man will say, boy, I just killed you on this exam. <laughs> And then it makes it public and it makes it a contest versus the girls and the young women. They really want to do well, particularly now where it you know, leads to, to university and um, a higher paying job. Um, it's very important, but it needs to be done subtly. Why? Quietly. Why does it need to be done subtly? What's really the dynamic so that's sad driving that these this kids desire? At the school do amazing accomplishments, and the school doesn't celebrate them to the level that these kids deserve. And as such, these kids are thinking that their accomplishments don't mean anything. But it does mean a whole lot. I mean, graduating in the top 3% of your class in terms of SAT, PSAT scores is a huge honor. And we should be celebrating the kids for that, not trying to hide that information from well, them. Well, you know, we had heard over the last couple of years, since really since the George Floyd um, tragedy that, you know, the, the concern about making other people feel bad because they're not in high honors or they're not in honors or they didn't get an AP designation or they didn't do well on, a, on an exam even. What does that do to objective standards in the United States? Oh, it absolutely destroys it, right? I mean, these kids are are thinking that, you know, that their accomplishments don't mean anything. Well, that... no, but what, what does it do to the kids who who are coming up through the ranks or maybe are improving oh. over time. Why bother trying, they, really? Absolutely not trying. I mean, why would you? I mean, these awards don't mean anything to you. Your accolades don't mean anything to you. You're led to believe that, you know, college admissions don't even look at SAT and ACT scores anymore. Why are you even working on your studies? I mean, it's just a hodgepodge of luck at this point. And at this point, what do the kids at TJ say 
about how this is all going. I and mean, they kind of know what's going on, do they not? Yeah, they are. I mean, my son and his friends have, have made comments that they really are proud of the work that I'm doing and some of the other parents are doing to try to make the school better. They were really proud when they got accepted to this school. I mean, it's one of the ago. top, it is one, let me just tell everybody watching, it's one of the top schools in the United States, period, Thomas Jefferson High School. But that, that made them feel bad, or it's not fair to the other kids who didn't get in. I I've never it, heard of anything more ridiculous. I don't think it made any of them feel bad. I don't think these kids actually felt bad. I think it's the talking about the administrators. Yeah, the administrators feel bad, or they think the kids should feel bad, and they try to, to impart those feelings onto these children, and that's just really inappropriate. Well, your son doesn't really deserve to go to a top school. It has to be given to someone who didn't do as well. Shauna, thank you very much for bringing this issue to light, and we're going to be following up on this. Thank you so Thanks much. So much and good luck to your son. Thank now, the medical censorship police strikes again. Of course, this is happening where common sense goes to die. Of course, California, where new laws go into effect this week. Doctors who spread so-called medical misinformation will now be subject to various punishments. Now, the sanctions range from reprimands to suspensions to complete revocations of medical licenses. Joining me now is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford. Dr. B, who gets to determine what constitutes misinformation? What? I mean, in California now, essentially, if you go to the doctor, you have the CDC in the same room with you as your doctor. And the doctor has to decide whether they're going to serve the CDC or the patient. Uh, it's an absolutely uh, an incredible thing that has happened. Uh, I mean, normally, you would want the doctor to serve the interests of the patient rather than just public health in general. And now, under law, under threat of losing their license, California doctors serve the CDC over the patients. Dr. Bhattacharya, isn't it curious that as new information is coming out about the efficacy of these boosters, antibody-dependent enhancement, uh, natural immunity, vitamin D3, zinc, all the other antivirals, the early interventions, now we're seeing the states say, whoa, 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 we can't talk any more about this stuff. Isn't that curious? Well, I mean, the thing is, it, these issues are complicated. There's a lot of you know, differences of opinions about among experts on these issues. What this law does, this new law in California does, is essentially tells doctors, if you express your honest opinion, you're, you could lose your license. Um, that's the purpose of the law. It's to take qualified doctors out of that conversation so that there's an illusion of consensus on all of these complicated issues, when in fact what we really need is all minds at the table talking considering honestly saying what they actually think instead of this sort of suppression of, of opinion by, uh, by, by government edict. Well, one of the most courageous doctors. In okay, I think that's going to do it for now. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh,